If you're a last-minute gift shopper, then Instacart is your holiday rescue app this season. No more tracking packages, no more trips to the post office, and no more Christmas gifts arriving in February. Instead, you can just download Instacart to order gifts like beauty, tech, and gourmet goods from local stores and get them delivered in as fast as one hour. Plus, right now, you'll get free delivery on your first three orders. This offer is valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 plus to purchase alcohol where available. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Here's what I mean. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, so check this out. I was on my laptop scrolling through sites because I had nothing better to do. It was around one in the morning and I ended up on a game site and I was there for a decent while. During one of my games, an ad popped up and automatically took me to a different site. From the start, this site was super sketchy. The background was black and the text on site was a faded red. It was a chat room. As much as I was weirded out, I was also very curious. I stayed for a minute to see what people were talking about. In the chat log, it showed the username guest. 463379 had recently logged in. I'm guessing that was me. My computer started to act up, and someone got into the chat room and started typing. I tried to get my computer to stop being weird, and a message was finally put into the chat. Dalton J. Overmeyer. My full name. The typing bubble popped up again, but before he could send the message, I shut my laptop down. I thought that was it for the night, so I tried to forget about it and went to bed. The next day, I didn't even remember what happened. I got up at about 10, I went to get breakfast, and I saw that my mom had already left for work. I got some Reese's Puffs and went to the couch where I turned on the TV and checked my phone. What came on the TV was the news, so I turned it a few times until I found something that I could tolerate. As I ate my cereal... I just responded to a few text messages sent to me by my friends. I then checked my Snapchat, Twitter, and then Instagram. I had a few new followers, but one kind of stood out to me even more than the rest. The username looked familiar somehow, but hey, I brushed it off. I clicked on their profile and he had no posts, and his profile picture was just the standard blank Instagram photo. He had around 400 followers and was following close to, like, maybe 300 people. I thought it was odd, but I ignored it and continued on with my day until about 2 p.m. I went outside to check the mail, since our mail usually comes around 2, and as soon as I stepped out the front door, there was a letter sitting on the top of our porch. I picked up the letter, and it read Dalton J. Overmeyer. My full name again. Confused. I opened the letter cautiously and saw that there was a single folded up piece of paper inside the envelope. I pulled it out, and the letter had all of my information on it, including my address. It had to have been hand-delivered. 
There was one message on the letter, and it wasn't typed like the rest of it was. The message simply read, I'll see you soon, Dalton. Now that I was officially and fully creeped out, I went straight back inside and I locked the door. I shut all the blinds and locked everything that could be used as an entranceway. The event last night crossed my mind, so I ran upstairs to my laptop, I opened it, and I powered it on. As soon as I got logged in, the laptop was no longer glitching, but the site from last night was still on my computer. The last thing that was said in the chat was, I'll be seeing you shortly, Dalton. It was the same guy from last night. I thought of the weird Instagram follower and quickly pulled out my phone and checked my notifications. I clicked on the guy's profile and held it up next to the chat room. They had the exact same username. Before I could even process what was happening, a new chat appeared in the box. It was from the guy. He said, Hi, Dalton. I see you have my letter. I read the text out loud, and my face went from really creeped out to absolutely horrified. I was clutching the letter in my hand, and I looked at my hand in horror and looked back at the screen. A new tab popped up, and it was me. My own camera from my own laptop. I looked at it and pulled up my phone. A new message appeared in the chat. Put the phone down. I read the message and continued on my phone to call 911. Another new message popped up on the screen. If you press that call button, you won't live to see them arrive. My heart sank as I read that message. I slowly lowered my phone and set it on the desk. Another new tab popped up on the screen. It was me, but from a different angle. This time, it was a live camera feed coming from the corner of my room. My eyes quickly darted around the room to find the source. There was a small micro camera installed into the top corner next to the ceiling on my wall. As I got closer to inspect the said camera, I heard a notification come from my laptop. I walked back over to see what it was. A new message that said, I see you found one of my cameras. Congratulations, Dalton. After I read that, a picture message was sent into the chat. It was a picture of me again, but this time, it was from my closet. Horrified, I slowly turned to the closet and began to walk towards it. As I got closer, my heartbeat increased tenfold. When I finally reached the closet door, I swung it open and found nobody there. What the hell? I said out loud. I swiped my clothes out of the way until I reached the back of the closet. I dropped to my knees and began to search for a camera. Instead of finding a camera, I found an extremely small hole in the wall. Stupidly, I decided to put my eye up to it, and from there, I could see the bathroom on the other side. I dashed out of my closet, grabbed a bat that was in there, and ran to inspect the bathroom for people. Luckily, there was nobody. But since I'm on the second floor, there was a window in the bathroom. I peered out of it to find a drone hovering outside the window. I jumped back in horror and threw open the blinds. The drone flew out of view and I thought to myself on the way back to my room, if he's able to fly a drone that precisely, he must be close. That thought ran shivers up my spine. When I got back to my room, there was another new chat. That bat is going to do you no good. I tried not to let my fear take over and start crying, so I gripped the bat as hard as I could. 
I took a deep breath and I asked him, What do you want? Within about a minute, I got a response. Oh, Dalton. Why do you think all this happened? It wasn't a coincidence at all. I know who you are. I've known about you for a long time. Did you really think that ad popped up out of nowhere? No. I put that on that website because I knew you'd go there. I just had to wait for you to get on your laptop. Another picture message was sent, but this time it was from my window across the room. I dashed to the window, but I saw no drone. So how did he take a picture of me? I heard a notification from my laptop I went back over to see a message. Confused much? Look again. I walked back over and saw nothing, besides the neighbor's yard and the street. At first I saw nothing, but as I narrowed my vision on a car that I've never seen before on our street, I ran back to the laptop. A new message popped up on the screen. That's not where I am. I went back over one more time and looked around the car to a tree on a blank space of land that has no house on it. The laptop gave a notification, but I didn't leave. I took out my phone from my pocket, and I used the camera app to look out that far. I zoomed in all the way, and I saw him, standing by that tree. He was wearing some type of a mask and hood, all in black clothes. I ran back to the laptop and checked the message. Bingo! Why are you doing this? I shouted out of fear, and I never got a response. I stayed in the bathroom with my phone and my bat until my mom got home. I quietly opened the door and looked downstairs to see her opening the door. She shut the door, and I ran up to her and tried to tell her what had happened, but the words just wouldn't come out. She told me to calm down and use my words, so I took a deep breath, and I tried to tell her. As soon as the first few words came out, I heard three loud bangs on the door. I told my mom to get back and I held up my bat. What in God's name are you doing? She shouted. I didn't listen to her and I swung open the door, ready to swing at whoever was there. Whoa, chill, a voice yells out before I could even see who it was. I look over my bat and I see my friend, Chase. Jesus Christ, Chase, you gave me a heart attack. I said in a slightly angry but also relieved voice. I'm sorry. I saw your mom was home and I just figured you were too. I invited him in and sat him and my mom on the couch. I explained the whole situation and I even tried to show them the laptop. The chat was, of course, deleted now. But I remembered there were still cameras. I ran upstairs and they followed me. I showed them and their expressions went from slightly worried to horrified. The car was gone outside, so we all hopped in and sped to the police station. By now, it was closing in on 8 o'clock. We made the police report, and I even showed them a picture of the camera on my phone and the hole in my closet. They were very skeptical at first, but after I showed them the camera and the hole, I could tell they were starting to believe me. We waited in the lobby, and they came back to us after about a half hour It was almost 9 p.m. now, and they showed us that this type of camera can only be custom-made because of how small it is and how far its range is. There are many companies that could make this type of camera. So they ran by all the recent purchases, and there was nothing. A horrid idea came into mind. What if the guy bought it before me 
and he used it on others. I blurted out. The officer looked at me strangely and then said, That's not a bad idea, kid. He went into the back for about another 15 minutes and then came out again, this time with a few papers. He sat down and showed me them. The paper was a list of people that have gone missing combined with purchases from tech shops. One of them lined up. A custom micro camera paid for with cash is 165 bucks. Jenny Wilmsley, 15, missing in 2018. The camera was bought in February of 2018. Jenny went missing in July of 2018. Did you also say he had a drone with a custom zoom and camera and another camera that he used himself? The officer said. Yes. He also hacked into my laptop somehow, I blurted out right after. We can't trace the hacker, but we can trace the purchases. I'll see if I can get them right now. The officer said while getting up. He began to make a call and headed to the back. A few officers came back out and said they would be escorting us back to our house. We drove back with them behind us and let them inside the house. It was now an official crime scene. That night, all three of us stayed in a hotel and waited for further updates from the police. At about three in the morning, I awoke to tapping on the window. So, groggily, I walked over to the window in my boxers and a t-shirt, and I opened the blinds. I saw him. The man in the mask was at my window. The man in the mask hadn't moved since I peeked through the blinds. I silently opened the patio door and I stepped outside. The man still hadn't moved. I approached him and I poked his shoulder. He wobbled. I took off the mask only to find myself staring at a blank, white, mannequin face. He had tricked me. But then I thought of something. This isn't a trick. This, this was a distraction. He knew where we were somehow. I ran back inside and woke up my mom and my friend Chase. We all knew just by looks that we needed to call the police. I used my cell phone to call the cops and they arrived very shortly. They investigated and they told us there are armed police officers outside your house. We cleaned up the crime scene. You should be safe. So we gathered our stuff and got into the car to head home. When we finally got back, we got all of our stuff from the back seat and went inside to finally get some rest. I woke up at 5 a.m. to a call on my phone. It was a local number. I picked up, and immediately I was met with the voice of the chief investigator I talked to earlier. He sounded worried. We found an unidentified car parked near the hotel. We traced the number of the license back, and it was a stolen plate from a case three years ago. I felt sick from hearing that, but my next thought killed me entirely. If he's not in the car, where is he? I said. I could hear the investigator's heart drop. He yelled at his fellow officers to immediately get to my address. The phone hung up before I could even process what was going on until it hit me. He was in the car with us. Before I could even make it to the stairs, the front door opened and I heard footsteps. I quickly ran back to my room and I hid in my closet in hopes that whoever was down there wouldn't find me. I heard footsteps come up the stairs and into my hallway and then outside my door. Dalton. I heard. It wasn't from outside the closet. It came from right behind me. 
Before I could look, I felt a hand with a thick, black glove cover my mouth as the door opened. The radio chatter came on as he entered. Dalton is gone, requesting backup immediately. It was an officer. I felt a small but sharp pain in my neck as the officer ran back down the stairs. My vision started to blur. It was an anesthetic. Later, I woke up in a strange room that was filled with technology. I could see wires, cameras, and the works. There was a door across the room. I tried to get up, but I was bound to the chair. The man wearing the mask entered within a few minutes and started to set up a tripod. After he set that up, he hooked up a microphone to the camera and he started recording. Based on the room, I'm guessing we were underground. I looked behind me and I saw another door, but this one was wooden. I looked back at the man in horror and I asked him, What are you doing? He chuckled and he moved the camera off to the side of me. He then proceeded to pull down a screen that was connected to the ceiling and then he walked behind me. I heard the wooden door creak open and slowly close behind him. I turned around to see what was happening. He had brought out a projector on a rolling cart along with a few films. He began setting it up just in front of the wooden door that he came out of. I looked away once the bright projector light switched on, and then I looked back to the screen to see some horrific things. This guy was making snuff films. I could only assume that I was next. It made sense. He watched his victims for weeks, filming them, knowing them. He would then use his knowledge and technology to break these victims down until he took them. I had to figure out a way to make it out of wherever this is immediately. The chair was bound to the floor. It was metal, and he had officer-grade handcuffs on each armrest. The footage continued playing while he was off somewhere getting whatever he was getting, and I began to panic. I yanked the handcuffs hard and repeatedly. One of the handcuffs had a slightly sharp edge, and I used it to cut my wrist open, not on the vein, but just enough to bleed. As my wrist began to be covered in blood, I heard his footsteps upstairs. I had to move faster and hold in my screams of pain. I used the blood and squeezed my hand through the handcuffs to finally get one hand free. Now I was stuck. How do I get my other hand out in this short amount of time? I could only think of one way. First, I tried to find an edge, but one of these pairs of handcuffs seemed to be newer than the other. The next option was going to be painful but if I was going to survive, it needed to be done. I broke my wrist and multiple bones in my hand while biting down on my shirt to silence the cries of agony. I eventually got it out, but how would I get out of the cellar? As I heard him start to come down the stairs of the cellar, I thought of an idea. I found something I could throw to get his attention to go somewhere else. I then hid behind the door that would open. As soon as he opened the door, he dropped what he was carrying in shock and he screamed. It was more like a yell of pure anger and rage more than a scream of fear. He saw the chair was empty. I then threw the small object to the corner of the room that he hadn't looked towards yet. It caught his attention enough and he drew a large knife from a sheath and walked quickly over to that corner of the room. I decided to make my move. I snuck up the stairs and found myself in a broken down and abandoned house. I made my way quickly to a broken door and I walked out. I was in the middle of nowhere. The road was paved, but not recently. 
There was a cornfield about a mile down the road. When I heard a noise from inside, my last bit of adrenaline kicked in and I took off down the road. I ran until I could see civilization. It was my neighborhood. I found myself in that field that he was standing in watching me the other day. I ran and I jumped the fence that separated the road from the field. I ran to my house and I burst inside. Immediately, I collapsed on the floor. My mother came running in with multiple police officers. They called for backup and for EMS. I told them exactly where he was and I told them exactly what happened. I was rushed to the hospital and it took a few days to recover. Chase was allowed to go home while I was kidnapped, although he had officers with him as well. I got word from the chief investigator that they never found this guy. I gave them all the information I had, but it still wasn't enough. All remained normal after that. I fully recovered and was going to therapy. I would say it was about a month and a half before something related to the incident happened again. I was watching TV on the couch, home alone, and I flipped past the news channel, but something caught my eye. I quickly flipped back, and I immediately saw on the national news. Breaking news. Man who is now being called the DWS killer strikes local town, down paralyzed with fear. I turned up the volume and I listened to the girl speak. The dark web stalker, also known as DWS, kills in a local town of West Virginia. Police say related cases in the state are now blamed on the DWS. This totals a body count of 22. I muted the TV because I recognized it. It was the same man that hunted me, but I survived. Seconds later, someone banged on my door. I was hesitant to open, but I ended up doing so anyway. It was the police. Dalton Overmeyer, you are being placed into high-security witness protection by the FBI. You will remain safe. I looked outside the porch to see an undercover FBI van. They told me to gather everything I need as fast and neatly as possible that I will need for the coming months until he's captured. It took 15 minutes to gather my things while armed guards waited outside my house and inside as well. They escorted me outside and into the van. As I got inside... I immediately noticed the van was armored from the inside. In the back, the team of armed guards sat down with tactical rifles. There were three seats in the front, kind of like a truck. There sat a driver in body armor and the chief investigator of our town. He began explaining the situation and where I will be taken to. It was about 30 minutes and we started driving through a national park. Something didn't feel right. I looked at all the people in the van and they had the same expression I did. They knew something wasn't right. The day started turning into night as the trees got thicker. I saw a very shady area around a mile up. As we got closer, my heart started thumping in my chest. As the area got closer, it began to be unbearable. Stop! I screamed as the driver looked at me along with everyone else. The back end of the van exploded and sent the front half of the van flying into a tree that was just ahead. I blacked out for God knows how long. When I began to open my eyes, I noticed I could see the forest and the rest of the van that exploded. My vision was blurred and I began to see someone emerge from the tree line. I blinked and he was that much closer. I squinted to see who it was, but I regretted doing it immediately. Guess who? It was the man in the mask.
When I woke up again, I was in the trunk of a car. It took a minute for me to come to my senses. I most likely had a severe concussion, but what really brought me to my senses was how hot and stuffy it was. I felt a slightly cool breeze on my hand and I jolted my head back to see what it was. I saw the slightest sliver of daylight. He punctured a hole in the trunk to give me just enough air to survive and keep me conscious. I wiggled and squirmed my way into a position where my mouth and my nose were directly next to the hole. My head was pounding, so I decided to close my eyes since I was completely tied up anyway. I woke back up when I felt the car stop because my nose slammed hard into the back of the truck. I then saw a giant flash of light and squinted until I could see again. The man in the mask was staring right at me with the sun beaming behind him. I felt something wet drip down my now throbbing nose. It dribbled onto my lip. I could taste it was blood, and lots of it. Oh, did I stop too hard? I heard in a deep, low voice, followed by a chuckle. <laughs> he picked me up and threw me over his shoulder as we entered a hospital. The hospital wasn't active, though it was an abandoned, run-down hospital. He slammed my body onto a wheelchair and strapped me up even more. He chuckled to himself after he was done and then began wheeling me down the hallway. This wasn't a newer kind of wheelchair. It was one of those old wooden ones that are very uncomfortable. He wheeled me into a room with a large mirror and some run-down machine in it. I could hear a TV coming from the other room, but the audio quality wasn't great, so I assumed it was an older kind of big box TV, you know? I heard his footsteps become quieter as he walked away and I stared at myself in the mirror, trying to focus away from the pain. He didn't come back for a while after that, and I didn't think there was a way out other than to somehow break the wheelchair. But to break it, I would at least need a little bit of room to move. He had strapped me down to the point where I physically couldn't budge anywhere. All I could do was look around. But then I realized every wheelchair has brakes. He had to have locked the brakes, but it's common sense to know how to break them force. After about 10 minutes of trying to wiggle, I finally got enough room to slightly move my back. I took that opportunity to use my lower back to slam it as hard as I could. I kept trying for about another 10 minutes. There wasn't much room, but I had to do what I could. I eventually heard the slightest crack. I turned my head to the side of the wheelchair where it came from. I looked at the ground to find a little chip of metal come off the brake. That gave me enough motivation to keep going. I kept doing that until I heard another crack. Another piece of the brake came off. As I kept moving, the straps were loosening, slowly but surely. I kept repeating that until I heard a slightly bigger crack. I looked to see if the brake actually came off. It took 25 minutes of that for it to finally work. My back was throbbing, but I would rather have a cracked tailbone than to be dead. I hit it one more time to make the wheelchair move. It spun me around and the wheelchair then tipped over. I slammed to the ground but heard a loud crack as well. I tried to see if I could move but I still couldn't. I heard frantic footsteps coming down the echoey hallway until I heard them right behind me. Not working out so well, is it? I heard the familiar deep voice behind me. My vision fixed from sideways to upright as he picked me back up and made sure I was still. 
He'd left again, and I listened to his footsteps down the hallway until I couldn't hear them anymore. I heard a creaky metal door open and a scream come from inside. The voice sounded familiar. It was the chief inspector's voice. I slammed my back against the wheelchair and I went rolling backwards. The other brake was broken from the fall. I rolled out of the doorway and across the hall into a broken down shower room. It was disgusting. There were things I could use to my advantage that I caught on to very quickly. One of the broken shower walls had a piece of bent rebar sticking out. I had to roll myself over there. It took about ten minutes of slamming my back and maneuvering the wheelchair. I quickly stopped when I heard a bang. It came from the room the other two were in. I was so close to the rebar. On the rebar, there was a piece of wall hanging on the tip. If I could get it off, I could use the rebar to cut the straps. I heard the door all the way down the hallway open. I slammed into the rebar and the wall came off. The rebar was a little bit sharp and I looked at it as I started to roll away. The footsteps were getting closer so I slammed into the back of the wheelchair and the wheelchair shot back into the rebar. I felt a stinging pain in the side of my lower back. I tried to look down and I felt wetness inside my shirt. The rebar had stabbed me. It missed the strap and went straight through the wheelchair and into me. It wasn't deep enough to puncture any organs, but I could eventually bleed out. The footsteps came into the room that I was in. The man in the mask ran across the shower straight to me. He saw the blood dripping and he pulled out a knife from his belt. He cut the straps and threw me on the ground. I could feel him on my back and touching near the wound. A burning pain made me scream out in agony. I tried to turn around to see and I could see that the blood had kind of stopped flowing out of me. The man had put something back in his pocket and then he stood up. My wound was black now. He had cauterized my wound and I couldn't figure out why. He picked me up and threw me back in the wheelchair that was taken off the rebar. He ended up wheeling me outside the showers and instead of going to the room I was in previously, he started wheeling me down the hallway. We went past the room with the old TV. Undercover van blown up by IED kills 11. Chief Inspector of Sparrows Ridge is currently missing in action. That's the last I could hear before we entered the room with the metal door. The room was in very poor condition and it also looked like it was an old crematorium. In the corner sat the chief investigator with a gunshot wound in his head. The man in the mask wheeled me into the opposite corner and he started asking occasional questions. They weren't questions related to information at all though, they were just really personal and uncomfortable. He began asking about all the bad things that happened in my childhood and he made me say them out loud. As I was answering one more question, I heard a loud bang. It shook the entire room and my ears rang. My jaw started to pound with pain. I looked down to see where the pain was coming from, and I fell unconscious to the ground. How I survived? I have no idea. I heard a few days later, the man in the mask was killed in a shootout, and the police rescued me. Another story says that he dropped me off at the hospital and then left the country. I'm not sure what the true story is or was. The only thing I remember after that is waking up in the hospital. Apparently, I was in a coma, but my jaw was completely shattered. The bullet was shot at an angle, so it didn't pierce anything fatal, but 
left my jaw permanently disfigured. Wow, what a powerful story, said the interviewer. What did you do when you woke up from the coma? Well, I started. I tried to just recover as best as I could. I tried intense therapy. I got a job from home so I don't have to leave my house. You know, sometimes I wished that bullet did kill me, but that's never a good ending to a story. Something had a plan for me. Something made me survive, and since I'm here, I might as well finish it out strong. Outstanding. What an inspiration, said the interviewer. Cut! A loud voice echoed throughout the set. The director walked up to me and began talking to me. I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something along the lines of that cheesy crap of, Oh, congrats! You got your first documentary! But at what cost? Getting my jaw blown off by a forty-four? Being left with a list of mental issues all for a documentary? Yeah, I'll get paid millions for it, but it won't fix anything. This event happened in 2018. I was thinking these thoughts and replaying all of it in my mind as I walked home. I was in LA at the time, and my apartment wasn't far from the studio they were filming the documentary at. I'm sorry if this is a boring ending, but that's my story. My name is Dalton, and I survived the DWS. Thank you. Finishing my work for the day, I shut off my webcam and I went up to the kitchen to make some Kool-Aid and wait for my dinner to arrive. I heard a few knocks at my door and I got so excited. I ordered my favorite pizza and I was so hungry. I looked through the peephole of the door and I didn't see anybody. I just assumed they left the pizza on the ground. I unlocked the door and I opened it. There wasn't a pizza at the door though. There was only a man. His eyes locked in on mine. Guess who? It was the man in the mask. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call this story The Wrong Way Man. We have this urban legend in my city called the Wrong Way Man. Supposedly, you might see him standing on the side of the road when you're driving, and some say it's always when you're on your way home. I've seen pictures of the Wrong Way Man. They circulate among us in the form of Polaroids and crude drawings among students, workers, friends, and family here. But oddly, I've never seen any of those pictures posted in any online chat rooms. I'm not sure if it's because of fear, because those who've taken the pictures want to perpetuate the mystique of our local urban legend, or because of something else. I was pretty sure those pictures had been a hoax, just someone dressed up as the wrong way man. Maybe it was the same person every time. As far as what the wrong way man looks like, he wears his tattered clothing backwards. It's usually a flannel shirt and jeans. His painted smiling face looks eerily realistic until he turns to the side and you can see it's a smooth surface. It seems that he shaves his hair off, paints a face over the back of his head, and puts a shoulder length wig on that covers up his real face. Those who have met who claimed you have spotted the wrong way man say they waited a week before driving home, staying over at a friend's house or a hotel, and not even bothering to go home to pack a suitcase. I've also heard, though, that you need to wait a month. The common consensus seems to be, if you see him while driving home, don't finish the drive home. Turn around, 
go somewhere else and wait for at least a week. I thought it was a bunch of nonsense, until my date and I saw the wrong way man when we were going back to my house from the movies. It was Katie who spotted him. Slow down, she said. I think I see that wrong way man you were telling me about. Katie had only lived in the city for a half a year, so one of the things I had told her on my quest to share with her as many interesting things as I could had been our local urban legend about the wrong way man. Was it a coincidence that we'd just been talking about him a few days before? I had never seen someone dressed as the wrong way man in person. Pictures, sure, but never in person. My foot was shaking as I eased up on the gas. It was dark, nearing like midnight dark, and there were either no street lights or they were just off. My car's headlights lit him up. On the side of the road, he was facing us. Actually, He had his back to us. The painted face was facing us. The jeans and flannel shirt and wig were all turned our way as well. His arms and legs looked wrong. They were shoved down in his clothing the opposite way. I wanted to be amused, but I was alarmed. We got about ten feet away in my car. He turned his painted head towards us. Those painted eyes, realistic but forever held too wide, seemed to be staring right into mine. As we drove slowly by, I waved to him and laughed to try to ease some of the tension. He did not wave back. I looked at Katie. She was waving too, but she wasn't laughing. I glanced back in time to see the slick side of that person's shaved, painted head, and the optical illusion of a real face being there was shattered. Shattered, but somehow worse for it. Also, When I peered into the rearview mirror as we increased our distance, I saw something glinting beneath the shoulder-length wig that he wore. Hmm. Then he was gone, lost into the darkness. I picked up speed. He hadn't been walking, but somehow I was worried he would come after us too quickly. So what do we do now, Katie said. We can't go to your home or mine. I glanced at her, and soon we both just started laughing. Well, I said, after tonight, we'll be able to tell everyone around that we saw the wrong way man and went immediately home. I wonder who was pretending to be the wrong way man, Katie said. I wonder why they were doing it. Do you think we should turn back around and try to talk to them? I'd rather we didn't, I said. They could be dangerous, but I'm sure it's just someone looking to keep the urban legend alive. It's your car, Katie said, but if it was mine, all right, I said. We'll turn back around. My grandpa used to say, if you are in doubt which turn to make, you can always make a U-turn until you figure things out. He used that as a metaphor for life. As I made my U-turn, we drove past a blockbuster that I was hoping we could go into just to rest for a second and get our wits back and also ask the cashier if he had noticed anybody walking around. But it was too late and they had already closed for the night. My heart was thrashing in my chest. We drove down the entirety of that dark street without seeing that person again. It was a couple of miles long in that direction, so there's no way they could have walked or run the distance so quickly. Katie and I decided that the person dressed as the wrong way man must have left the shoulder of the road for the surrounding woods. The idea of them hiding in the woods as we drove by again made me feel like I had spiders crawling all over my flesh. We did another U-turn, and during that whole time I kept glancing around in case that person jumped at us from out of nowhere. But soon, we were heading back in the direction of my house with no second look at the wrong way man. 
Katie and I, we tried to laugh it off, and we tried talking about other things, but both of us were pretty scared. We couldn't stop chatting about everything and nothing, or glancing out the windows or into our side mirrors. We turned into my subdivision, then we turned onto my street, and everything changed. As soon as we turned onto my street, we started to go backwards instead of forwards. Did you put it in reverse? Katie said. Her hand was gripping my arm, and it was cold as ice. I stopped the car. Both of us were looking down, and the car was in drive. I took my foot off the brake and put it onto the gas pedal again. The houses, familiar houses I saw every day when coming home, were moving away from us. Maybe something's wrong with my car, I said. But when I tried driving forward again, I looked to the side and then in the rearview mirror. We were not moving. Not according to those views. In front of us, the houses receded every time I put my foot on the gas. But from the side and rear, it appeared that we were just standing still. On my street, everything was well lit. There were tons of streetlights, so we couldn't argue it away as if it had something to do with limited visibility. Let's get out of here, Katie said. Her voice was almost a whisper. Yeah, I said in a similar way. But how are we going to leave? Put it in reverse. When I put my car in reverse and tried that, we actually moved forward. But to the side and rear, once again, we seemed to have not moved at all, like we were caught just past the entrance to my neighborhood. It was when Katie and I had stopped the car and were debating getting out that we spotted someone coming towards us on the sidewalk. They were approaching us from the front of the vehicle, so I'm not sure how accurate the distance was. It seemed like they were about 20 feet away. I don't know why it took me so long to realize this. Maybe it was because I didn't want to, but I recognized my neighbor by the back of his head and by his body shape, which was somewhat atypical. I'd seen him often stooped working on his garden while I was driving by. He was walking backwards towards us, and when he got closer, he stopped. Then he began shouting, Eem boy, Eem boy, over and over again, standing stock still his back still to us. Only later would I realize that he had been saying, help me, in reverse. I rolled down the window. Mr. Nelson, I said, what's the matter? He stopped shouting. Now that my window was down, I could hear his body creak and snap. Blood poured out of fissures as the joints of his arms and legs changed drastically. When Mr. Nelson's head twisted all the way around towards us, I was sure that I saw the light go out in his eyes. Then, whatever had taken over Mr. Nelson made the first step forward with the new architecture of his body. Katie and I both began to scream at that first step. I rolled up the window as Mr. Nelson loped around on strange, inhuman legs. His kneecaps and elbows had become stretched and exaggerated from being reversed. I put my foot on the gas, with the car still in reverse, and through the front windows we seemed to be careening forward even though a glance out the sides or the rear view showed us still, very stationary. We slammed into Mr. Nelson. Blood slashed across the windshield. The car rose and fell as we went over his body. To the sides and rear, there was no indication of the car rising and falling. I didn't see a lump appear behind us. I kept my foot on the gas, still going forward in reverse. I saw a window of a neighbor's house shatter. A couple I barely recognized crawled out like baby spiders out of eggs, leaking blood and more blood as they scraped themselves against the shards of the window frame. 
I don't think it was that they didn't know how to open windows. When the wife paused in the window, she smiled. She intentionally rubbed her scalp against a particularly sharp-looking piece of glass. Meat and blood came away. I think I could see the white of her skull. By then, her husband was already on the ground running towards us. I sped forward. They and their house vanished in the sides and rear of the vehicle, which were, again, still stuck near the street's entrance. More people were coming out of their homes. They came out all twisted and broken, damaging themselves further as they exited. They ran towards us on backward legs, churning their backward arms. Everything about them was the wrong way. Before long, I found myself slamming on the brakes. Keep going, Katie yelled. They're going to catch up with us. Ahead, I saw my own driveway. Someone that looked like me was talking to another person with a painted face. The painted face nodded. Up and down, it nodded like a real face would do. Then, when I saw the wig shuffle and move seemingly on its own, I realized that the true face under that wig was talking, moving its lips, breathing. The wrong way man was talking to me, or someone who looked like me. At the same time, Katie was reaching over me, trying desperately to put her foot on the gas. A couple of twisted pieces of bone and meat collided with the windshield. Two faces with bunched-up folds of neck leered at me out of glazed eyes. These were faces I should have recognized. Their twisted arms continued to beat at the window even though their eyes told me that no one was home. A spider's web of cracks spread across the windshield. Its grooves caught blood. I slammed my foot on the gas while helping to steady Katie back into her seat. We flung those two off, and right after we ran over an entire family in quick succession. I didn't have time to feel guilty. These were not my neighbors. These were not my neighbors. These were not. Katie and I both began to change. I heard some of my bones break. I felt it a moment later, like the reverse of lightning before thunder. Katie and I started screaming, almost in unison, and about in the same tune. It was like a choir of pain and fear, and fear and pain had risen up with us as instruments. Keep your head back, I yelled as I strove to keep my head pinned against my seat. Don't let it twist around. No matter what happens to the rest of our bodies, we can't let it kill us. I know, Katie said. Just get this car out of here. Make a U-turn or something. Make a U-turn, I thought. What was it my grandpa said about life and how if you didn't know what to do, you could always make a U-turn? Still in reverse, yet still going forward, I wheeled the car screeching around. I didn't glance out at the sides or rear. I gunned it, heading back towards where we had come from. The wrong way man waited. He waited for me at the juncture of my driveway in the street. His painted mouth grinned forever, and his painted eyes were too wide and incapable of blinking. We passed him and drove out of the neighborhood. Katie and I weren't out of the woods yet, though. I was able to get us to a nearby gas station before my legs and arms, which were partway reversed and leaking blood, completely gave out. We crawled out of the vehicle and onto the cold, hard concrete of the gas station. I blacked out almost at once, but Katie tells me she retained consciousness until the ambulance arrived. I don't envy her. We spent months in the hospital with broken bones and torn ligaments and muscles. I think the only thing that had saved us from permanent damage might have been the seats of our vehicle resisting our changes. We told the doctors we had been in a car accident, and they shook their heads at us and kept asking questions. 
I did go back home eventually. We both did. The reason why I went home was because one of my neighbors that we had run over with my car came to the hospital to visit me. They seemed completely fine, as if nothing had happened and the wrong way man had never changed them. But damage was done to my vehicle and to Katie and me, both physically and psychologically. And while our bodies are on the mend, I don't think we'll ever be the same. I feel the wrong way inside. My name is Richard Sanchez, and I like to go on country drives in my 1987 Toyota Camry. I got it from the used lot just up the road, maybe like three years ago. As I'm writing this, it's November 30th, 1996, a day after I saw that thing in the forest. I haven't seen it since, but I have a feeling I won't be here much longer, so I need to make this quick. It was 10.30 p.m. I live near a large forest, I'd say about three miles from my somewhat country home. I live on the outskirts of a small town in the northern Midwest. Anyways, I decided to go on a drive about 10.30 at night on November 29th. It's last night. My job and my boss were pain in my ass, and I didn't want to start drinking. So, I thought I would go for a night drive to clear my head and to give me some peace of mind. It took close to 10 minutes to reach the country road that led through the forest. It was an old road... Hasn't been repaired in years, so the asphalt has kind of sunken down into the dirt. Some of it just completely eroded away from the rainstorms that we get here. It was a nice night, the moon shining bright with minimal clouds. As I venture into the forest, I notice the trees overhead, slowly swaying in the wind. I'd say about 10 mile an hour winds blowing east ever so softly. The leaves softly rustled as I felt the cool night breeze blowing in through my windows rolled down. I got about a mile into the forest when I noticed it got darker. The trees were looming overhead, blocking out any moonlight that was previously there. It was peaceful at first, but as I slowly drove further and further into the thick forest, it started to become almost unsettling. It started becoming quieter in the forest. The few birds and owls stopped. The wind died down, and the trees were no longer swaying. I started to slow as I saw a tree down in the middle of the road. I got out of my car and slowly approached it. It seemed to have been here a while, and there was no way I was going to move that thing. Of course, I said as I sighed. I knew I would have to turn back. But then I heard a strange noise. It was very unnerving. It sent chills up my spine, and the hairs on my body stood straight up. It was like a child's whisper, except it was coming from inside the thicket. I turned to the direction of where it was coming from, and it was like it was calling me closer. I began to venture into the direction of the whisper when I saw something dash between the trees. I used the flashlight from my keychain and illuminated my way further into the dark thicket. I called to the noise. I said, is anybody out there? Are you okay? What I saw next, I just can't explain. I heard a slowly cracking branch to the left of me deeper into the forest. I shined my light on it. A creature made entirely out of sticks. It blended in with the trees. It was so lanky, so slender, yet appeared to have a wide 
body stance. When the light hit its face, it let out a ghastly, horrifying screech that shook the leaves as it bounced off the trees. I almost dropped my flashlight keychain as I ran back to my car. I could hear it. It's behind me. Its branches, or limbs, or whatever the hell those things were, are cracking and trampling the dead, fallen leaves behind me. I finally got to my car, opened the door, got in, and locked it. I immediately put the car in reverse and floored it back down the old road for at least a mile. I turned around and floored it back to my house, which was about five miles away at this point. As I looked behind me in the rearview mirror, I saw the creature peering from behind a tree as it just watched. I got to my house, rolled up the windows, locked the car, and I ran inside. I've been sitting here at this desk ever since, and it's now 1 a.m., and I feel intense paranoia that this thing will find me. I'm not sure how long I have, but whoever finds this diary, please, no. What I saw out there is true, and I will never go back to that forest again. Michael Zinsky wasn't my usual type of client. He wasn't a spurned lover looking for revenge, or a murderer looking to snuff out the witnesses of his crime, or a husband hungry for his wife's insurance policy. He was just an ordinary guy looking out for his sister. I wouldn't normally resort to such drastic measures, but Harold has become so awful, treats her like garbage, doesn't give a rat's ass about her or anything except for that stupid band he sings in with his work buddies. He blew his nose loudly. You understand that, right, Switchblade? I winced. Uh, hey, that's just my alias, Michael. You shouldn't, like, actually call me that during casual conversation. Then what should I call you? I blinked. Clearly, he had never done anything like this before. Uh, hey, do you have the cash? His eyes darted around the diner. Then, from his pocket, he pulled out a wad of $100 bills. Hey, you can't just... uh, They'll see it. I hastily threw him one of my napkins. Wrap it up in that, and do it discreetly. He wasn't discreet, but thankfully, the diner was nearly empty at this hour. It's twice your usual rate, he whispered very loudly. I wanted to give you a big tip, so you'll do a good job. A tip? You're not ordering an ice cream cone, Michael. You're ordering a hit. But I took the cash, I smiled, and I buried it deep in my pocket. And I don't want you to kill him. What? Michael. You know I'm a hitman, right? Yes, but Nancy needs his income. She's been a housewife for the past 20 years. No work experience, no education past high school. There's no way she could support herself on her own. Michael, you could support her with the cash you just gave me. He shook his head. I've tried. She won't let me. Cares too much. I sighed. Well, okay. Suppose I take you up on this job. What do you even want me to do to him if I can't kill him? I don't know. Scare him. Threaten him. Just make him stop being so terrible to her. But it's risky business. I mean, he'll know what I look like. And look, he'll go on Sunday morning. He'll be napping alone in the house. Won't even see you come in. Michael looked down at the table, and then he added, It's the only time he's ever alone in the house. The only time he lets her leave. My belligerence evaporated and I felt a pang of sympathy. It's that bad? He nodded. Okay, I'm in. The house was a tiny little thing, 
shoved into the gap between a massive brownstone and a dilapidated food mart. It would be a challenge to do it without any witnesses. But good, I like a challenge. I snuck through the backyard, creatively using the various bushes and fencing to hide from onlookers. I then stepped into the window like Michael told me to. The knife was heavy in my hands. I turned left at the kitchen and crept into the living room. In the center was a microphone, a music stand, and some sheet music. I assumed this was for Harold and his band. Nancy's needlepoint supplies were pushed into the corner, taking up as little space as they possibly could. I walked into the next room, and there, in the armchair, sat Harold, fast asleep. I took out the chloroform from my pocket, and with the grace of a dancer, laid it against his nose. I then set to work. I visited Nancy myself a few weeks later. I like to do that sometimes, posing as a friendly neighbor to see how their lives have changed in the wake of my work. Yeah, I know it increases my chances of getting caught, but as I said, I like a challenge. When she flung the door open, her eyes were bright and she had a smile. Hi, I'm Smith Baker, I said. Just moved here, a few houses away, behind the food mart. Oh, how nice. Please come in. She led me into the living room and I smiled. The music stand and other music equipment were thrown haphazardly in the corner and Nancy's needlepoint was sprawled across the entire sofa, taking up as much space as it possibly could. Smith, this is my husband, Harold. He just stared at me, still, silent, pale. And then he started shaking, wildly, clawing at the raw, red mark across his throat. Oh, sorry, I should explain, she sat down with a small smile. He's not trying to be rude. It's just that, well, he had an accident a few weeks ago, and now I'm afraid he can't speak. She patted his arm comfortingly as he clung to her. Or sing, unfortunately. Hmm. An accident that mysteriously cut his vocal cords and left the rest of him untouched. I could see Harold's hand shaking, his lips trembling. I wonder if he was thinking about the first thing I said to him when the chloroform wore off. If you don't treat Nancy right, I'll slit your throat again. And next time, you'll lose more than just your voice. I smiled at Harold. Would you like a cookie? I asked, holding out the tray. I baked them myself. My next client was typical. Ed Smithers, 45, looking to off his wife, Allison, so he could run away with his mistress, who was aptly named Bunny. This was an easy one. Too easy, really. Their mansion stood on a five-acre plot far away from any potential witnesses. The back door would be unlocked. Ed would be practicing pool and downing whiskey in the basement, and Allison would be getting ready for bed upstairs. I slid the door open. The house was dark and quiet. I took off my shoes. I tiptoed across the marble floor and up the stairs. The rush of the water came from the bathroom. She was in the shower. So I hid behind the master bedroom door and waited. What? You thought I'd kill her in the shower? Please. I'm a hitman, not a barbarian. Let's get her dressed first. Then we can get to work. Within ten minutes, I heard the water shut off. The dulled thump of damp footsteps on tile and the click of the doorknob turning. And then she walked out into the bedroom. I just stood there, watching her through the crack in the door for several minutes. 
She sat on the bed in her pajamas, running a towel through her damp hair. She doesn't even know. The words rung out in my head, unbidden. She doesn't know that her husband hates her so much, he wants her to die. My hands were getting sweaty, and the knife began to slip. She doesn't know that her husband is a monster, just like Harold. I stepped out from behind the door. Allison dropped the towel, her eyes widened, and she began to scream. Allison, just like Nancy, just like Mom. I clamped my hand over her mouth. Listen to me very carefully. Do not scream, I growled. Do not call the police, or I will kill you. She nodded, trembling with sobs. That's the voice I use when I want to scare people and get their attention. I snatched her phone off the desk for good measure, and then I ran down the stairs, down into the basement, where I found Ed, perched over the pool table. Is it finished? He asked, barely looking up. Clack. The cue hit the ball, sending the seven into the hole. Yeah, I replied. Behind him, I pulled one of the cues off the rack. Clack. The ball's all scattered. Oh, good, he said. You'll find the rest of your fee and a tip on the coffee table over there. What is it with these people than tips? But I held my tongue and crept closer to him, rolling the cue between my fingers. I've got to ask, what did Allison do to you to make you want to kill her? He chuckled. Clack. The nine sank in the hole. She got old. (laughs) I pulled the knife out. And then, well... I won't give you the juicy details, but let's just say this. He's not going to have sex with Bunny ever again. Harold spoke to the police, you know. Or, well, didn't speak. He wrote. Michael slid the sheet of paper across the table to me. Five, nine? 150 pounds? Oh, that's very flattering. I'm barely five, seven on a good day. I began to laugh. And that's a great police sketch. Look at that jaw. Chiseled. So manly. How can you be so casual about this? (laughs) I laughed. This isn't my first rodeo, Michael. But they're going to catch you. They have a sketch. And Harold's testimony? And what's that worth? I laughed. Judging by the twinkle in Nancy's eye, she knows damn well what happened. She's not going to back up his story. Besides, I called in a favor. What? Let's just say I have quite a few friends at the hospital. I don't understand. Hospital records now show that, tragically, Harold Smith had glottic cancer. So, a few weeks ago, he decided to get a vocal cordectomy. I plucked the last cheese fry off the plate. Harold's testimony will be seen as nothing but the ramblings of a crazy old man. That's brilliant. But to be safe, I dyed my hair from brown to blonde. Oh, is that why you're wearing the hat? (sighs) Yeah, I kind of messed it up. But Brittany at the salon will fix it. She owes me a favor. I killed her uncle at half price because I wanted to impress her. I wiped the grease from my hands on a napkin. Turns out, she had a boyfriend the whole time. Michael just stared at me, blankly. Anyway, the whole reason I wanted to meet with you, Michael, is because I wanted to ask. Do you know of any other evil people like Harold? What? I'm hanging up my hitman's hat. Or noose. Or whatever. So you want to become, like... A hitman vigilante? Yeah, sort of. Michael leaned back and crossed his arms. Not that I know personally, but there's always Black Widow. What? That's what I call her. You probably know her as Femme Fatale, because that's what the media's been calling her too. 
She's the one that killed all the rich people in 2010. Or, well, I guess she didn't kill them. She tied them up alive, and their three golden retrievers, he trailed off. Several other deaths were linked to her over the years. One recent, but they never caught her. Wait, how do they know what's a woman? Long brown hairs were found at the crime scene, and they calculated her stature to be pretty short, I believe. I suppose I'll give it a try, I said with a slurp of coke. Not like I have anything better to do. After pouring hours into researching Black Widow, I pinpointed a possible location. There was an abandoned house at the end of April Lane. The police had found one of the murder weapons there a few years ago. She was long gone since, but maybe I'd find some clues inside. I stepped over the dilapidated fencing. The house was pocked with patches of rot, and the whole thing leaned askew, as if it was going to fall any second. The windows were all shattered, and so I had no problem getting in. Unfortunately, it appeared to be completely empty. I walked up the stairs anyway, my flashlight catching clouds of dust swirling in the light. I walked from bedroom to bedroom, praying the creaking floorboards wouldn't snap under my weight. But when I entered the last bedroom, my heart soared. There was an old board nailed to the wall. Scraps of notes and photographs covered it. Why didn't the police take this in as evidence, I thought. But then I realized the film of dust on the board was far thinner than the rest of the house. It was new. And one photograph was pinned in the center. A man with brown hair wearing a black hoodie walking down Main Street. No. My heart began to pound. It was me. Surprisingly enough, I have a lot more clients now than I used to. Did you know the demand to maim people is higher than the demand to kill them? Honestly, I don't know why more hitmen don't do it. I guess they figure the risk is too high, but I find whoever is hiring you, the abused wife, the estranged son, is willing to put in the extra work to make sure you don't get caught. Also, I've started wearing a hockey mask, you know, just to be safe. It's actually great. The victims are much more scared of me now. Something about a guy named Jason? I don't know. Sounds like a chill guy. So I've updated my credentials on the dark web, which is not nearly as scary as you guys make it sound. Sure, there's lots of drugs and porn, but there's also some really nice people on there. Like me. And on Tuesday evening, among dozens of messages from clients, there was a message from Silver4239. All it said was, please call me. And then a phone number. Now... I understand not putting your desire to stab the hell out of your ex-boyfriend in writing, but this was shorter than usual. When I called, a young woman's voice answered. I don't have long, she said in a hushed whisper. He's, he's threatened me. I'm not supposed to talk to anyone. Don't worry. What do you need? I can't say more. Just come to our house. 12 Thistle Drive on Wednesday night at 10 p.m. The back door will be unlocked. And bring your switchblade. <laughs> I laughed. Uh, it's actually just my alias. I use a normal knife. It's a lot easier to... Hello? I shrugged and set the phone down. The house was much smaller than my usual clients. Probably won't get paid for this. I ducked around the bushes into the backyard. Though, I guess I could do it pro bono. She seemed pretty upset. I found the back door unlocked as promised and slipped into the dark kitchen, taking off my shoes at the entrance. The house was even uglier on the inside. The only nice thing about it was a huge painting hung next to the front door of a man standing on the beach with his kid. She didn't tell me where to go. 
I shrugged, pulled out the knife, and crept up the stairs. The faint squeak of a door. I whipped around, but all the doors were shut tight. Which one first, I thought. Judging by the cracks under the door, all of them led to dark rooms. And then the rush of water. Ah, the bathroom. I grabbed the knob and twisted it. The faucet was on. Water was filling up the sink, splashing out on the counter. But the bathroom was quiet and dark. No one was there. I walked over to the sink, and with a gloved hand, I twisted it off. And then, from behind me, from the shower curtain, a hand shot out. It grabbed me, pulling me back by the collar. I went flying. Crack. My head slammed against the side of the tub. I tried to scramble up, but could feel the cold steel of a knife pressed against my neck. So I froze. You're early, the voice said. I looked up. A woman crouched over me, petite, with brown curls and piercing blue eyes. She looked almost as if she'd gotten dressed up for this. Red lipstick and a long black gown. No. No. She smiled. You're Black Widow, aren't you? I prefer Ray, she said, pulling off my mask. Did you bring a switchblade like I asked? Her right hand nimbly, feeling my front pockets. No. Oh well. I thought it would be poetic to kill switchblade with a switchblade. She pushed the knife harder against my throat. Why do you want me dead? I glanced at the floor. My knife had fallen in the scuffle and lay several feet away. Damn it. Someone asked me to kill you. A family member of one of your victims, I assume. And they're willing to pay a lot of money, she replied. I need the money. It's nothing personal. But you still have enough money to buy fancy gowns to murder people in, apparently. She shook her head. Her brown curls falling around her. No, I only have the one. I take care of all my victims in this gown. That's kind of gross. I wriggled my arm away from where I had been in contact with her and slid it underneath me. Don't worry. I clean it every time. (laughs) I laughed. Must be one hell of a dry cleaning bill. It's nothing personal, Switchblade. In fact, you seem quite charming. And under different circumstances, her right hand trailed up my thigh as her left hand kept the knife against my neck. I smiled back at her. Yeah, we might have a little fun. My hand wriggled further underneath me until I reached my back pocket, but I maintained the intense eye contact with her and a small smile on my lips. She took the bait and leaned forward and kissed me. I yanked the switchblade out of my pocket. In one motion, I swung it forward right into her hand. The knife clattered to the floor. You bastard, she screamed. Good luck stabbing me to death with your left hand, I laughed. (laughs) I picked up her knife from the floor and began to walk away. But I underestimated her, because she leapt up with the speed of a tiger and flew at me. This time, she didn't miss. We went tumbling down the stairs. I stabbed at her wildly. She clawed at me, bit at my arms, and then we reached the bottom with a sickening thud. She thrashed and shrieked underneath me. Let me go, you monster. Shut up. I pulled out her knife, and then I set to cutting off her right hand. Wait! She cried. Please don't do it. Too bad. No, please! She began to sob, (laughs) mascara running down her cheeks. I used that hand to paint. My father and I, 
we paint together. She trailed off into ugly, choking sobs. You're obviously lying. No, I'm not. The painting by the front door, we did it together, and she shook her head. Just please spare me. This is probably the stupidest thing I've ever done, but I actually believe her. I eased off her, carrying her knife. I walked to the door. Before I swung it open, I saw the signature scrawled in the lower left corner. Ray and Harold Bradshaw. And heard her whisper, barely audible above the wind. Thank you. So check this out. Living in Nebraska is boring. It's nothing but farmland, grass, empty roads, and random animals for miles. I needed money to move away to somewhere more inhabited, somewhere with better Wi-Fi, and with more things to do than just shoot things and grill steaks. Because of the uncertainty of some big animal popping up out of nowhere, I always kept a gun on me. Well, in my routine session of driving for about 100 miles, I managed to find a diner. Generic name generic paint job. It was the most generic diner imaginable. I pulled into the small parking lot, stepped out of my old pickup truck, and walked in. Inside, more of the same. Walking in, I saw a now hiring sign hanging loosely on the window. And oddly, no gun-free zone signs were on the doors, windows, or anywhere on the exterior. I see you guys are hiring. Where can I apply? I said to myself. You can simply ask for the manager, mister, a waitress replied. Weird how she heard me, but given that the diner only had four patrons, she must have just heard me talk to myself. Around 7 p.m., been driving for a long while and needing a way to make money, I did just that. A muscular, tattooed, and tall man in a button-down shirt greeted me with a friendly grin. He ushered me to his small office space. It reminded me of a utility closet, only bigger. It was barely big enough to hold more than a Walmart office chair, a table for two, and the file cabinet on the side. So, sir, I see you have your identification, social security card, and other essentials for this. Is this your first job, sir? The muscular man asked. It's my first full-time job. I sold odds and ends to make money. I replied truthfully. Well, sir, just need to do a standard procedure background check, so please answer truthfully. He responded, still with a somewhat friendly tone in his voice. I have no criminal record, sir. I answered to his statement entirely truthfully. The muscular man introduced himself as Alex Rubio, shook my hand firmly, and looked in his filing cabinet. Well, sir, we do need spots for employees between midnight and 8 a.m. You earn eight twenty-five an hour, and your days are Thursday through Monday. Welcome to the crew. Just sign these papers and read the employee manual thoroughly, Alex said firmly, yet jovially. Decent paying job, nice quiet hours, and I stepped out to a chair to read the manual. Fairly standard stuff mostly concerning health and safety. But page three was something I never expected to see. It almost looked like notebook paper, crumpled up and smoothed out as best as possible against a table edge. The rules are as follows. Rule one, if you're taking the trash or recycling out, always bring a flashlight. If none is found, inform the manager immediately. Rule two, if you're cleaning up something outside between the hours of 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., Make sure you have earbuds in and the volume on maximum. The diner has free Wi-Fi. Rule 3. 
Under no circumstances is the back door to be open between 3 and 5 a.m. No truck delivery is ever scheduled between those hours. If a truck is at the back, inform a manager immediately. Rule 4. At all times must a walkie-talkie connected to at least three other walkie-talkies be worn and never turned off. If the batteries in it die, wind up the crank on the back and inform everyone what has happened immediately. Rule 5. Once a week, a man in a tattered pair of sweatpants and sweat-stained t-shirt will come in at 2 a.m. If he asks for anything, provide it, no matter how strange or seemingly impossible. Rule 6. There should be four employees on shift during 12 a.m. and 8 a.m. Keep count and remember Rule 4. Rule 7. Under no circumstances should anyone open the door to a group of people greater than five. Inform them that there is an equipment failure and go to the kitchen immediately after saying that and stay there for 15 minutes. Rule 8. If a customer comes in and mentions a weird creature in the window, use any means necessary to destroy the creature. There's a gun in the filing cabinet and it is to be inspected for integrity and if it is loaded completely. Rule 9. If a rustling sound is heard from the dumpster or recycling bin in the back, use any means necessary to stop it. Fire is a last resort, and a book of matches is under the counter by the cash register. It's weird that such a simple place has such strange and unusual rules, I thought to myself. I signed the papers and went back to Alex to let him know. He was busy with a phone call and took the papers without skipping a beat, but he told me, Sir, your first day is this Thursday, so two days from now. Please head to the door on the right, and there should be a clean uniform, hat, and walkie-talkie for you. He told me quietly enough for the person on the other end not to hear him. I looked for a shirt my size and a hat that fits my head. A few minutes later, I found him. I thanked Alex for the job, and walking out, an employee noticed the walkie-talkie on my hip and shook his head, almost as if he knew what was going on. Thursday eventually came, and I arrived to the diner at about a quarter to midnight. I had my gun on me, my phone at full battery, and a backup set of batteries for the walkie-talkie. That beast took a C battery, so it was pretty heavy. I carefully reread all the rules to remember them, and a night shift manager introduced herself. Name's Julie, new guy. Don't get too ahead of yourself and don't fuck around. Oh, harsh. I'm Hank. Pleased to meet you, I said sarcastically. The other employees, a cook with a wide scar over his eye, resembling a horse hoof with chunks of metal embedded in it, introduced himself. His name was Jeff, and a lady in her mid-thirties with cheap makeup on introduced herself. Her name was Henrietta. Well, moments passed. It's 12.05 and we have another eight hours ahead of us. Just follow the rules and get to work, Julie barked coldly, putting earbuds in her ears and playing music fairly loudly. Jeff just made himself a cup of coffee, and time flew by, and eventually it had become 2.30 a.m. Soon after that, a faint knock on the back door was heard. Jeff just fried an egg while dicing some onions, and Julie was far from even caring about the noise. I looked at the paper with the rules on it. Between 3 and 5 a.m. It's 2.40, so who could that possibly be? I said to myself, curiously. A loud mechanical click came over the walkie-talkie, and Julie's uncaring voice was heard. Don't open it. Remember rule 6, new guy? How could I have forgotten? Must have been too wrapped up in dealing with the trash. I only had 10 minutes to deal with it, so I power-walked to the dumpster. What the hell is that r- Oh, shit. I muttered, grabbing my walkie-talkie hastily. New guy, better be important. You have eight minutes to get back. Julie groaned over the sound of loud rock music. 
There's some rustling in the dumpster, I said, scared. You got a gun, don't you? Rule nine. Also, you did follow rule one, right? Julie said with slight anger and annoyance. Oh, man. Rule one, I whispered. As soon as I muttered that, a large raccoon poked its head out and scurried off, carrying a half-eaten bit of toast (laughs) in its mouth. Gross. Something peculiar about that raccoon, though. Don't know what. Jeff's walkie-talkie was making mechanical clicks and whirs. Hank, you alright out there? You gotta finish what you're doing quick and hurry back. Unspoken rule, kid. Jeff said, a bit anxious-sounding. I just threw the trash bag in the dumpster and ran back inside. I slammed the heavy wooden board lock down and checked the time. 2.59. Nearly three hours and only a single customer who asked for an omelette with spinach and cheese. Nothing else unusual happened for the shift, so... I simply did my duties, drove home, and went to bed. Hopefully tomorrow will be different. Another shift, another adventure. That became my motto. Venturing inside at 11.40pm after a drive to the diner, a couple things went through my mind. Something isn't adding up, and it's affecting more than the diner. I drove about 120 miles yesterday and only went to a single gas station. Shouldn't I be out of gas by now? I circled in my own thoughts. A quick cup of coffee and preparing my equipment for the shift later, I reread the rules to myself until midnight, greeting my co-workers with a friendly smile, light conversation, and a horribly unfunny joke about eggs and how much they exaggerate situations. My watch read 12.01 as I started to help Jeff clean the flat-top grill. It was easy, considering Jeff cleans it every hour and a half. Henrietta's voice came over the walkie-talkies, telling us she needed a replacement battery. She sounded different. Last night, she was in her mid-thirties, and now she sounds like a kind of old grandma. She might be simply trying to be silly, but considering the circumstances of the rules and the incident involving time last shift, certainty wasn't exactly in supply or demand. Checking my watch made me doubt my surroundings more. As I finished cleaning the grill, the clock on the wall said 12.10. My watch, however, said something different. It was off by a minute or two, which isn't too abnormal. Maybe heat does that to watches. While I was gazing at my mechanical watch, the main door in the front opened. The bell jingled, and someone walked in. Poking my head up, I saw Henrietta walk to him with the menu, and another thought went through my mind. Why did Julie say Rule 6 involving the door last night? Rule 6 is keeping count of employees. I wondered, getting distracted. New guy, stop fucking around with your daydreaming and go be useful, or I'll have you clean up pebbles in the parking lot, Julie thunderously yelled, snapping me from my thoughts. Uh, um, sure thing, boss. I stammered, sheepishly. Checking my watch, it read 1.37 a.m. Got spare time to do some window cleaning, and might as well enjoy the fresh, cool air while I can. Grabbing some Windex, a clean rag, and getting to work, I barely paid attention to the inside of the place. Nearly tripping over a rock, I saw the clock on the wall and went bleached bread white. The clock read 1.59. How could time have passed so rapidly in the short time I was cleaning windows? Someone's pulling a prank on me, for sure, right? That thought of a childish prank comforted me as I rapidly put my earbuds in my ears and started to blare loud music into my eardrums. I might be unable to hear someone yelling mere fingernails away from my face, but rules are rules. Guys, got earbuds in on maximum volume. Outside. I shouted into the walkie-talkie, barely able to hear my own voice, let alone anything beyond gunshots and motor collisions. 
Resuming my task at hand, the fairly faded windows became crystal clear as I wiped them down after a couple of sprays of Windex. I smiled at my reflection, seeing an average guy smile back at me. Looking up, the night sky was illuminated with millions of stars, and the sight of the Milky Way galaxy brought awe to my mind. Looking back at the window, a visibly unamused Julie looked back at me with a glare, much like a parent's glare to an obnoxious child. Walking inside, Julie was going to keep it as brief as she normally would. New guy, you didn't hear the walkie-talkie, did you? She spoke through thinly hidden fury. Uh, no, I was outside cleaning the windows. I saw it was 2 a.m. and remember the rule where you have to put in... You head- told people that you were? Or am I simply pulling that out of my ass? She seethed through gritted teeth. I did. What was over you the... You didn't see anyone in the window, did you? Julie said quieter than usual. I saw my reflection, I answered. Julie eased up suddenly and sighed loudly. Soon after, the walkie-talkie started emitting loud radio static, and despite my instincts to turn it off, something caused me to freeze in place. I remembered what rule I would break if I did, and it was bound to lead to me getting fired, or even worse if that happened. Slowly, I inched my hand back from the walkie-talkie and headed back to the kitchen, where Jeff was sitting on a worn, faded plastic crate, looking at something on his phone. Henrietta perked her head from the far end of the kitchen, curiously peeking before returning to cleaning out a coffee cleaner. Something was odd, and it concerned the rules. Why can't I go out back to deal with the trash between 3 and 5 in the morning? Surely the front wasn't taken into consideration. I have to ask Alex about this whenever he's working the graveyard shift. And how come Jeff said something about an unspoken rule last night? I asked him myself. I said, Jeff, you said something about an unspoken rule last shift. What is it? If I told you, it wouldn't be an unspoken rule, Jeff jokingly said. So, I assume anyone outside during 3 and 5 a.m. are left there? I whispered to him. Was there anyone working this shift before me? I mumbled to him, worried about the answer. I can't talk about that right now, and I wouldn't ask anyone else if I were you. Jeff spoke in a tone that was colder than dry ice. Something tells me it wasn't good, so I checked my watch. 3 a.m. Time must have flown in that conversation. Henrietta offers everyone a cup of coffee and Jeff starts to act like nothing happened. That's when a faint knocking sound on the back door started, almost like something was scratching at it. Looking around, I saw something very, very strange. Henrietta. Her makeup was sloppily applied and her usual faint lipstick is a bright color now. Henrietta tapped me on the shoulder, asking what I was looking at. If you're... There should be four employees, right? I whispered in a fright with the words barely escaping my mouth. Henrietta walks to the back door to the knocking. Not even a second after Henrietta and I reached for our walkie-talkies, the back door was opened and jammed to keep itself from closing. Rule three was broken by an imposter. On the other side of the door, it looked exactly the same as it normally would, but the sky was tar black. All except for the moon in the sky, which was glowing a sinister orange. The door, as I came to realize, was a barrier. Julie is shouting her lungs out over the walkie-talkie about the door. Getting fired isn't a big deal right now. Something is going to pick us off one by one. Frankly, I'd like to get fired so I don't have to deal with any more of this strangeness. Cautiously, I grab a Maglite flashlight and step out the back door into the inky abyss. Guys, You think something is out here? I asked over the walkie-talkie. Jeff grabbed a headlamp from a box in the cramped, confined, slightly smelling of mildew office and the butcher's knife from the kitchen afterwards, trembling slightly in fear. 
I saw him stare cowardly at something I couldn't see, and I heard an animalistic hiss. The Henrietta from earlier was glaring at Jeff like a stalking animal, and it was about to catch its prey. I heard Jeff run for dear life and a couple extremely loud gunshots, so I ducked my head to give some sort of shielding. I heard the sound of a rabid cat's hiss and rapidly fading footsteps, and someone grabbed me and threw me away by the back door. New guy, you're not dying on my shift. Maybe someone else's, but definitely not mine, Julie said out loud. I saw she had a Smith & Wesson revolver in her hand, and as quickly as I saw her, she went off to do something. Not sure what. But then came dead silence. I could hear the pitter-patter of tiny insectoid legs and feet across the metal piping, the linoleum tiling, and even the ceramic dishes, possibly bugs coming in to get away from the cold outside. Hell, I'd have a strange comfort in knowing that it was cockroaches, as then I'd have the knowledge of what it is without even seeing it. Hank, the front is far different. I can see the stars and Milky Way. Hell, even the moon is in an even orange glow. It's like... Henrietta spoke into the walkie-talkie before it suddenly dies in an ear-piercing blast of static. I decided to check my phone and turn on the radio to at least have some sense of normalcy. Looking around for the FM radio app, I noticed my phone battery drain far faster than normal for a fairly old phone. Hey guys, is there a radio? My phone has the ability, but it's dying pretty quickly. I babbled into the walkie-talkie. Hey guys, is there a radio? My phone has the ability, but it's dying pretty quickly. Uh, that just came from my walkie-talkie. It sounded exactly like me, except... Bestial? No. That couldn't be. I don't sound like a beast, right? I must be hearing things. That, or there was a feedback loop from a nearby walkie-talkie, which would make sense, given that everyone on shift has to have one on, but surely that would mean either someone is right behind me, or through something basically impossible through the laws of thermodynamics to clone the walkie-talkie. A sudden scratch against the window got my attention, and looking out revealed a peculiar sight. The sight in front of me was a large raccoon, and it was scratching at the window. I thought it saw its own reflection and was attacking itself, as it was early summer and a male raccoon at that. Somehow, it looked familiar to me, and I looked familiar to the raccoon. It stared at my lips as I was speaking, and then it started to speak back. Hank, you need to escape, the raccoon mouthed before scurrying off into the darkness of night. I think it knows me from somewhere. This is getting out of hand. Am I losing my mind, or is all of this actually happening? I don't know, and I'm not sure which outcome is the better solution. All I heard as I ran to the back was gunfire and more bestial screams. It was hell trying to navigate my way around the suddenly monstrous amounts of clutter sprawling from the ground and endless swarms of cockroaches and mice scurried past my legs. I tripped over my own feet in a panic and fell down one of the holes, and I saw... myself and the raccoon. As I saw myself and the raccoon, I understood something about the familiarity. It's a sense of deja vu, almost like I've seen this all before. Hello? I called into the empty void. Nothing returned. Myself and the raccoon were still talking to each other, and surrounding me was some of the most awe-inspiring sights fathomable. Deep space. Billions of stars and planets. Infinite possibilities. I soaked all of this in like a sponge soaks in water, and I marveled at the sights like a child marvels at a superhero in a movie. I took pictures on my phone of it all, and I can hear myself and the raccoon talking now. How can this be? 
The orange moon? The monstrously large stars in the sky hidden by a void? Hank asked the raccoon. I do not know, Hank. I just know that they are related to something beyond fathom. Something that the human brain simply rejects to acknowledge, almost by instinct, Raccoon replied. And with a snap, a whiteboard and markers appeared. They started writing on it, and I couldn't understand a single thing on it. It had strange symbols, chemical equations, and many peculiar words littered it. I approached it, and Raccoon saw me. Hank, glad to see you again. Glad you could drop in. (laughs) That was a bad pun. What is this place? Who are you? And what does any of that mean? I asked Raccoon with nervousness. Hank, you are nowhere and everywhere. I'm the Raccoon you saw one night ago. And the symbols? Don't worry about them. They'll make themselves at home in your brain soon enough. He answered as more symbols appeared onto the board. Beneath my feet was the orange moon from earlier, and I could see a pair of impossibly large stars, each with a brown circle surrounded by a perfect black circle. Almost like... eyes. No, that's impossible. How can that even work? That orange moon is a light bulb! Hank shouted enthusiastically, as if he'd solved a great mystery of the universe. Raccoon scurried to the other Hank quickly and stared at his findings. His face said everything I needed to know. By the universe? You're right! Raccoon shouted in awe. I fell to my knees as preposterous thoughts flooded my mind. Could everything have been a lie? Is everything around me determined to happen? What's real and what isn't? Are my memories my own or were they implanted? The dread set in and my head ran wild with more thoughts. Hank, you don't look so good, said the other Hank firmly. You, you're me, and I'm you. Shouldn't a paradox have happened by now? I asked with sheer dread flowing through my veins. Well, it appears none of that matters. Nothing is either of our own, and everything is either of our own. Think about it. We can do anything, and nothing can or will stop up until determined so. Other Hank coldly responded, colder than liquid nitrogen. I could almost see the ice form around his words, and I realized he was right. He could do anything, as well as nothing. I could do anything and nothing. I could feel myself fading in and out simultaneously, both wanting to be and not to be. It was humbling to realize that something bigger than myself existed. This is rather humbling to know. It's weird, isn't it? I can find comfort in knowing that something more powerful than the most powerful person imaginable exists. It's a strange feeling, but if that is my own accord is the real question, I retorted to his icy cold words. The stars that were like eyes had the circles within dart around, and I could hear the clicking of a machine. It was almost rhythmic in frequency, and then the clicking of a computer mouse. I wrote on the whiteboard a connection that I had made. Everything is merely the typing of a computer, I whispered into the void. Hank, you're onto something, Raccoon interjected as he scampered up my back. I could feel my brain swell with infinite knowledge, and I saw other Hank's head explode in a shower of thoughts. I saw it then reform instantly, almost as if by self-preservation instincts alone. The thoughts I saw were all of my own, and none of my own as well. 
I had a thought and a hard time in expressing it into words. It was of my family and how they'd react to the possibility of never seeing me again. Hey, I got a question. Can I leave this place and return? I'm, I'm wondering about the people I care about and how they'll react. I asked with a tinge of longing. Well, it's tricky. It is possible to leave and return, but the process of coming back isn't exactly easy. I had a feeling you'd ask about telling your family. Well, you could tell them, but they'll never believe you, Raccoon answered without even turning his head to me. You have the ability to do anything, and all you have to do is think. You have unlimited possibilities. Other Hank followed up with, I know, I'll send a copy of myself in, just like me, before I got hired at that diner. And hopefully the cycle won't repeat, I said with a spark of realization. Realization. Living in Nebraska is boring. It's nothing but farmland, grass, empty roads, and random animals for miles. I needed money to move away to somewhere more inhabited, somewhere with better Wi-Fi, and with more things to do than just shoot things and grill steaks. Because of the uncertainty of some big animal popping up out of nowhere, I always kept a gun on me. Well, in my routine session of driving for about 100 miles, I managed to find a diner. Generic name, generic paint job. It was the most generic diner imaginable. I pulled into the small parking lot, stepped out of my old pickup truck, and walked in. Inside, more of the same. Walking in, I saw a now hiring sign hanging loosely on the window. And oddly, no gun-free zone signs were on the doors, windows, or anywhere on the exterior. Something about this place is familiar. Alright, so, check this out. The events in this story happened to me in 2014 when I was living and working in rural Japan, but they still keep me awake at night today. There are sights, sounds, and feelings that take me right back. A nocturnal animal scurrying just out of sight. Faint laughter with no clear source. A sudden strange smell that comes out of nowhere in the dark. These things remind me that all this light and civilization is as thin as a corpse's skin. And if you peel it back, who knows what nightmarish things you might find gnawing underneath. When I made that mistake, I was teaching English in a town with fewer than 3,000 inhabitants nestled in the mountains of a humid river valley. It could be lonely at times, but it was also a wonderful experience. Riding my bicycle through the fields at twilight, following cobwebbed trails to abandoned shrines, and sharing rice wine with my wizened, friendly neighbors. The biggest problem came from within. I never fully adjusted to the new time zone, and insomnia plagued me for the duration of my stay. I just couldn't find a good sleep schedule. Arriving home after my final class, I doze on the sun-warmed tatami mats until the long, cold shadows of twilight crept into the room. I'd usually nod off again just before dawn, then wake up and do it all over again. 
I kept one routine. My nightly trip to the 24-hour Combini gas station along the main highway. I'd hop on my bike around midnight and pedal out into a dark, surreal world of croaking frogs and black river water glittering in the yellowish street lamp light. Sometimes it felt like the scrawny teenage shop attendant and I were the last people awake in the world. I'd buy some snacks, flip through the magazines, and make a little small talk before riding off home until I experienced something that changed my routine forever. That night, my afternoon nap had stretched until about 2 a.m., and I awoke ravenously hungry. As I rummaged through my rented home in search of food, I had an awful feeling that I'd missed something important and irreplaceable, and nothing would ever be the same again. The cool night air and the familiar lights of the Combini relaxed me as I rode into the empty parking lot. As I approached the door, I noticed there was no attendant inside. Behind the Combini, a car door slammed. I crept around the side of the building, not sure why I felt a need to be stealthy. Around back, four men stood between a dumpster and a black Mercedes. One was a Combini attendant with a single gold earring and spiked hair who I didn't recognize. I figured he was on the late, late shift. He wore rubber gloves and was messing with something in the car trunk. Two of the other men had on dark suits and sunglasses, even though it was night, and they were whispering angrily at a third who looked hastily dressed in an untucked gray shirt and a loose necktie. Even with my low level of Japanese, I could tell they were berating him about damage to some merchandise. The attendant heaved the first trash bag out of the car trunk, revealing what was inside. A plastic tarp soaked in blood. A girl's corpse chopped apart messily. I clutched my mouth to hold back vomit or scream or both. Fear froze me in place as I watched the attendant drop bag after bag of what used to be a person like me into the Combini dumpster. When it was all over, the attendant threw away his gloves and accepted an envelope from one of the dark-suited men who shoved the disheveled buyer into the car. As their headlights sprang to life, I pressed myself up against the cold brick wall, praying that the beams would miss me. I shut my eyes as the black Mercedes rumbled by, seemingly oblivious to my presence. The attendant locked the back door as he returned to his post, and I was left panting in the darkness. Had I made it? I thought I was alone at last, when a pair of eyes like golden lamps sprang open on the forested hill across from me, and some night animal, a fox maybe, made a loud exit to the undergrowth. I must have gasped because I heard the Combini attendant grunt angrily and grab something, his footsteps rushing for the front door. I kicked over a box of recycled bottles for added chaos, then I bolted for my bike. As I pedaled for my life, I risked one backwards glance. The beefy attendant was standing silhouetted by the Combini lights, 
a huge meat cleaver in his hand. The right thing would have been to call the police immediately. If I had, I may have been spared the strange events that followed, or I too might have disappeared into several black bags. It's difficult to know how far the consequences of action or inaction can lead. I needed time to process what I'd seen, to drink water, to plan what to say. By the time I finished, dawn had turned the rice fields a misty shade of blue. I called the principal of my school and asked if she could request that a police officer meet me before school started. She was worried. She agreed. The officer was waiting for me when I arrived. Without his rumpled gray shirt, loose necktie, and a hacked-apart corpse nearby, I almost didn't recognize him. My words choked in my throat as he smiled and bowed. The officer-slash-killer addressed me in the most polite way possible, but I knew he'd seen my initial reaction. The story I stammered about foxes getting into my trash was as fake as his smile, and he knew it. His gaze coolly probed for weakness, and the more he questioned me, the more I was sure that somehow he knew. When our muddled, awkward conversation finally ended, he gave me another smile and promised to keep an eye on me, listening to the footsteps of his polished black shoes echoing ominously down the school corridor. It sounded more like a threat than a promise. I rushed back to the dumpster as soon as I could, but it was too late. The body was gone. They would get away with it. There would never be justice for that poor girl, and more would probably follow in her path. Why hadn't I checked the license plate number of the black Mercedes, or called the police immediately? Bitter thoughts formed an ugly gray veil between me and the rest of the world, and it took me a long time to notice the golden eyes observing me from the other side of the riverbank as I trudged gloomily home. It was twilight when I arrived, but not so dark that I didn't see the figure waiting in the shadows of my porch. The last rays of light caught the shiny buttons on his police uniform. I stopped, turned on my heel, and headed back the way I came. I didn't think about how exposed I'd be down by the riverbank. I didn't think about the lack of light down there or the tall grass that could hide a body. I didn't think about how if you wanted to make sure someone never talked, that was the perfect place to do it. Like a hunted fox, I panicked and I fled. I couldn't see my pursuer in the deepening darkness, but I could hear their footsteps. I was walking fast rather than running, captive to the childish belief that if I didn't run, the person chasing me wouldn't either. Yet. The further I walked along the riverbank pathway that led away from town and back toward the highway, the closer those footsteps seemed to get. The darkness under the bridge ahead was as black as an open grave, and I'd never felt more trapped or alone. The wind in the waist-high grass seemed to be whispering that I was going to die here and that my family and my friends would never know what happened. The footsteps were so close, 
if I turned around. Instead, I screamed and ran like mad under the bridge. My pursuer gave chase. Halfway through the inky blackness beneath the bridge, something happened that I still can't explain. I saw myself on the other side of the river, just beyond the dark underpass. This version of me looked as if it had run through the river, which wasn't deeper than knee height at any point, and he seemed to glow faintly. This vision was so shocking that I stopped running, but the footsteps behind me, they didn't. They sloshed into the river where they seemed to struggle, thrash, and then they stopped. A horrible smell filled my nostrils, a mix of dirty, wet hair, seaweed, and rotting fish. I slowly backed away toward the light as the ominous smell was followed by an even more frightening sound. Something was gnawing on bone. Beyond the bridge underpass, I panted and I waited. It wasn't long before I saw bright gold buttons on the tattered remains of a police uniform floating away down the river. Hmm. For several weeks, the whole town was abuzz with gossip about the missing police officer. Something told me it wouldn't be long before the men in the black Mercedes came by to figure out exactly where he'd gone. The circumstances around me were strange and frightening, but I felt like I actually had a chance to bring the killers to justice. There was something more as well. I had seen or heard the golden-eyed animal at least once a day since the incident at the bridge. It was like it was following me, willing me to do something. I'd long since stopped thinking of it as an ordinary animal, and the last thing I wanted to do was make it angry. That was why, despite the panic that rose in my chest every time I saw it, I began sticking out the kombini at night. The routine was fairly normal. The buff, spiky-haired attendant would show up nightly and appear to carry out a normal, boring night shift until I looked more closely. Sometimes, a customer would buy a random item with a large amount of cash and receive a little packet under the counter instead of change. Girls in party clothes would spend far too much time in the Combini restroom and leave wobbling on their heels. Nervous, single men would enter, pay, and receive a key, probably to a room at the local Love Hotel. The attendant looked more on edge than the last time I'd seen him calmly hacking up a corpse, but otherwise it looked like the racket was thriving. One night, I thought I had a perfect opportunity. The attendant ate a spicy tuna roll, and from the look on his face and my own prior experience, I knew he was about to spend a long time in the restroom. Enough time to dash in, grab the bell to keep it from ringing, and snag whatever evidence the guy had stashed in the bottom drawer by the cash register. I was just about to slip behind the desk when the bathroom door stepped open and the attendant stepped out. He'd just been washing his hands. I froze. For a few moments, we stared each other down. You're cute, he said in casual Japanese, 
or a foreigner. He didn't recognize me, but I didn't feel any safer. He was coming toward me fast, and his smell of stale sweat and body spray was soon way too close for comfort. I was backed against the counter with nowhere to go. Flirting badly and aggressively, he told me he knew some guys who could get me the job of my dreams. As his heavy, gold-ringed hand closed over mine, I wondered how many people he'd killed with it. Someone giggled outside, and the attendant spun away from me. There was a girl in the parking lot, just beyond the glow of the nearest streetlight. Even from this distance, she had a kind of radiant beauty that caught my breath and made it hard to look away. That's my friend, I lied quickly. Gotta go. I squirmed away toward the door, but I should have known I wouldn't be getting away that easily. The attendant followed me. Your friend, huh? He hissed threateningly in my ear. You better introduce me. He didn't wait for an answer, just shouldered past me and toward the girl. When he was almost close enough to touch her, she changed. I don't know how else to describe it, but it was like her features melted away, leaving blank skin where there should have been a face. One of her hands extended and reached towards the attendant's chin like a multi-jointed spider's claw. He screamed and took off running for the bend of the mountain road up ahead, the monster fast on his heels. The attendant was in the middle of the road when the headlights of the black Mercedes whipped around the curve, way over the speed limit and much too fast to stop. For a brief moment, they illuminated a pair of glowing golden eyes where the monster had been. Tires squealed and swerved as the car slammed into the mountain cliff. The medical team later said that the attendant in the road was killed on impact. The two mid-ranking Yakuza in the vehicle were not wearing seatbelts and were flung from the vehicle. The gashes that severed their throats were unusual, but not inconsistent with injuries from similar accidents. Their deaths exposed a ring of drug dealers and human traffickers who used the 24-hour Combini locations as drop-off points for their illicit business. I left Japan not long after, and I never saw the golden-eyed animal ever again. More than just the traumatic events I'd seen, I feared what that entity might expect me to do next. It had saved my life, however, more than once, and I wanted to pay it back somehow. That's why, before I left, I paid the new Combini attendant a hefty sum to always leave the leftover food uncovered out back along the mountainside. When I spoke to him again, he told me it always disappears by morning. I've been working abroad in Japan for about a month. I teach English as a second language at a nice high school in the countryside that's only a couple of hours from Tokyo by train. I began my tenure here as an assistant teacher to another American expat. 
She had been teaching at this school in Japan for about two years before I arrived. We'll call her Clara. After we met, Clara insisted that she be my mentor. There was only one other native English-speaking expat at this school anyway, and he's from Australia. For some reason, I got the feeling Clara was a couple of years older than me, as if she'd done the same thing I had and left the U.S. right after graduating college. When we talked between classes, I could tell Clara was smart. I'd say, wise beyond her years to the point that she seemed as smart or smarter than many of my older professors from my university in the U.S. Most of my days, initially, were spent sitting in on her classes, taking notes, and helping her assist students and grading papers. Before I get into what I'm going to say next, let me just say that I am not a simp, nor have I ever been. I was sure that Clara was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, and not in the way of classic beauty or what might cause her to have a lot of suitors or anything like that, but in a way that could have gotten a cult following. It extended to her mannerisms and how she phrased things. It was hypnotic. I literally had to keep my head still from tracking her as she moved, as if I were one of those cobras being charmed by a snake charmer. One day, when she had left her coat behind in the teacher's offices to set something up in a classroom, I tore off a piece of notebook paper and scribbled the following note from the Japanese-based meme. I said, Notice me, senpai. Leaving it unsigned, I placed it in her coat pocket. She either didn't comment on it to me or didn't notice it until a few days later. Eventually, she mentioned it almost casually in the middle of our conversation. It was me, I said. I tried to shrug it off, but I knew from the heat in my face that I was probably blushing. It was a Friday afternoon, and we had been doing some grading and planning for Monday's classes in the office that us expats all shared. The Australian guy, uh, we'll call him Charlie, had already left for the day. I'd never been that bold before. The old me might have faltered and said I knew nothing about the note. Hell, the old me would have never left the note in her coat pocket to begin with. To my surprise, Clara smiled when I told her that I was the author of the note. I had expected her to be creeped out. Other than when we'd first met and she had insisted on being my mentor, she hadn't shown any interest in me beyond our professional work. All right, Clara said, I'm noticing you. What do you want? She was still smiling. It was like it melted a hole straight through my chest and it was burning the wall behind me. I said, well, for starters, do you want to hang out? I mean, outside of work? How about we skip to the part where we go out on a date, Clara said. Her smile burning a hole through me, her eyes trapping me inside them. I said, uh, okay, let's see. How about sometime next week? Clara said, tonight. Let's hop on a train to Tokyo. 
I know of this great tempura restaurant there. You said you like seafood, right? I said, yeah. I'm actually surprised you remembered. Oh, I've noticed a few things about you before, she said. Well, okay, I said. I was feeling pretty darn flattered. Not to mention on cloud nine, this wasn't the way things were supposed to have gone at all. I was expecting to have been rejected. We agreed to meet at the train station a quarter after eight. With the time it would take to get to Tokyo, it seemed Clara wanted to eat late, which was fine by me. I mean, whatever the hell she wanted was fine by me. When she stepped up onto the train station platform, her outfit, stunning and elegant at the same time, it almost knocked me down onto the train tracks. Every time her lashes fluttered like the wings of a butterfly, I felt my heart skip a beat. I can't remember what all was said between us on the train ride to Tokyo, but I imagine there was a lot of gibberish coming out of my mouth. She wore lipstick. It was the color of blood. I felt my own blood boiling beneath the surface. Once we got to Tokyo, she held a cab and we made our way to the restaurant. The restaurant was dimly lit. The lanterns, a low pulsed glow that blurred the other objects in the room like something out of an impressionist painting. The waiter came over to us and handed us our menus. What are you thinking? Clara said to me after a few minutes, as if we'd been at this for a while. As if this wasn't our first date. I said, I'm thinking how lucky I am, grinning like an idiot. She said, no, <laughs> shaking her head. I mean, what are you thinking about ordering? Oh, I said. I looked at the menu. Ebi no tempura. That's shrimp tempura, right? She said, yeah, the classic. I think I'll go with that myself. When the waiter came back and Clara ordered, she asked the waiter if the chef put garlic on the shrimp tempura. She'd been here before, frequently, but she always liked to double-check, she said. She winked at me between talking to the waiter. Though the waiter seemed to understand English pretty well, Clara even asked him in Japanese. Niniku wa heyeta imasu ka? The waiter said yes in Japanese. I thought to acknowledge Clara's statement, but then he shook his head no. Somewhere along the line, there must have been some confusion with the order. The shrimp tempura came out with a distinct garlic flavor. Maybe they thought Clara wanted them to add extra garlic to mine. She seemed okay with hers. I didn't ask because I was afraid it was a bad breath thing that Clara didn't like. In between eating, I surreptitiously popped a few mints in my pocket to try to mask the garlic on my breath. And as we finished our meal, I asked whether Clara wanted to swing by Akihabara while we were in Tokyo for some late-night gaming and manga shopping. She replied in the affirmative. Excellent, I thought. She might be an otaku like me. She paid the bill before I realized what was happening. Outside, while I was trying to hail a cab, she nudged me, smiled suggestively, and pointed to a nearby dark alleyway. She said, let's take a little detour. 
and nearly tripped over my feet as I followed her. I popped a few more mints, just to be sure she wouldn't take offense at my garlicky breath. We went a little ways down that windowless alleyway until the lights from the rest of the city were just a haze, a little separate pocket of existence behind us. Clara slammed me against a wall. Things are proceeding rather quickly, I thought. But is it too fast? Her lips touched my neck, teeth biting down. At first I laughed, then I screamed. Warm blood. The blood in me that had been too eager to come to the surface pitter-pattered against the ground like a light rain. It might have been a downpour if not for Clara beginning to drink at the source. Before I could think to push her away, she recoiled on her own, staggering. Ugh, garlic, she spluttered. I heard a dry heave. I saw twinkling, demonic eyes in the dark. And then I saw her backside as she ran down the other end of the alleyway, faster than I'd ever seen a human move before. Squeezing both hands on the side of my neck to try to stop the blood flow, I jogged out the other end of the alleyway. I called out for help in English and in the only Japanese that I knew. Some nice people pouring out of a restaurant helped me get a cab to a nearby hospital. The hospital disinfected and patched up my neck, gave me some antibiotics, and put some IVs in me to replenish what I'd lost from bleeding. As infatuated as I had been with Clara, I gave a full report to an English-speaking police officer about what had happened. I'm not sure if he believed it. The following Monday, Clara was not at the high school we both taught at. No one else that I've talked to since has seen her. I haven't told the school about what happened. I figured, for now at least, I'll keep that between myself and the police. Also, something else is going on that's made me a little more reluctant to talk about these things. Nearly a week has passed since Clara attacked me. The wound on my neck should be healing. Maybe it is. Maybe the throb I feel in my neck, a throb I hadn't felt before, is just a natural part of the process. But now, as my own eyes become more and more sensitive to sunlight, often triggering migraines and nausea, and my skin begins to burn too easily in the sun, I'm reminded of a little detail about Clara that had somehow gotten lost in the mix of my infatuation with her. She'd always been in the teacher's offices before I got there, and she was always there when I left, no matter how early I arrived or how late I went home. As if she had gotten to school before sunup and had left after sundown every day. Hmm. So, check this out. The business card left in my mailbox was unassuming. A simple white font affixed to a black background, but its claim was bold. There is now an in-dream hotline you can call to escape nightmares. 
Simply find a red rotary phone in your dreamscape, dislocate it from the receiver, and choose a number to be connected. A good night's sleep is just around the corner. Enjoy your rest. It had all the makings of a half-hearted prank from my friend, Josh. After all, he was the only person I had told about my recent night terrors. But stooping that low, just for a cheap laugh? He knew my nightmares were deeply personal, all involving my deceased father. Would he really go that far? Though Josh was a funny guy, he could be sentimental when the time called for it. I wondered if this was less a prank and more an offering of relief during a tough time. His way of telling me there would eventually be a way out, a light at the end of the tunnel. I took comfort in this, opting not to reach out in case he decided to go back on it and laugh in my face. However caring the man could be, he detested heart-to-heart -heart moments. Thanks, Josh. I guess I needed this. With a slight smile, I placed the card in my pocket and went about my day, grateful for the gesture. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be enough to keep my demons at bay. Later that night, while resting, I was blindsided by memories of my father. Completely out of my control, a horrific scene came into focus, replaying the events of his death. I had no choice but to endure the torment and watch the events unfold in my mind, just as they had so many times before. I was a child, and we were swimming at our favorite spot on the outskirts of town. We often played a game to see who could hold their breath underwater the longest. On my father's last dip beneath the waves, he never came up for air. His body was never found. Being young and naive, I was convinced a creature dragged him to the depths of the ocean. As an adult, I now know this monster was a riptide, pulling him out to uncharted waters. Undercurrents in that area were fierce, eventually leading local authorities to close off the beach altogether. The search party never stood a chance of finding him. I violently thrashed about as the horrible images recurred, but soon found solace in the form of sleep. Like the many nights that came before it, this solace would be short-lived. My dream began as it usually did. I watched from the shadows as my dad tucked in my younger self and read aloud a bedtime story. This moment was always so peaceful a calm before the storm. I briefly basked in the ambient nostalgia before remembering the events that would inevitably come next. That's when the panic set in. After the story concluded, my father transformed into something horrific. Below his waist was now a grouping of slimy tentacles, wetting the floor as he slid across it. Above his collar were the grotesque features of a monstrous head, an amphibious amalgamation of loose appendages, sharp teeth, and gills protruding from his neck. His mouth opened at an unnatural angle, wide enough for it to devour my younger self whole. He then turned his attention to me. This was my cue to run. Racing through the house to escape the creature's clutches, I felt something fall from my shirt pocket. It was the Endream Hotline business card. I picked it up and looked it over. Despite the fragile nature of visual stimuli in dreams, the card was identical to its real counterpart. 
No matter how many times I read the text, none of the characters were fuzzy, jumbled, or rearranged. A thunderous growl crept up from behind. I sprinted to the living room. That's where I saw it. Right where my family's landline usually sat, a red rotary phone. In this moment, a compulsion washed over me. Despite the service being a complete fabrication, I was compelled to give it a try, if for no other reason than to see what would happen if I did. Perhaps my sleeping mind would fill in the blanks and wake me from the nightmare. I picked up the phone from the receiver and held it to my ear. There was a harrowing silence. Going over the card again, I realized it was time to pick a number. It seemed there were only five viable choices. Numbers six through zero had been scuffed away, along with the pound and star keys. When placing my finger in these holes, the wheel wouldn't budge. I instead decided to choose number one. The wheel turned, and my ear was met with a male voice. Thank you for calling the In Dream Hotline for escaping nightmares. How can we be of service? It worked. My brain was playing along. Um, I, I need to escape this nightmare, please, quickly. Certainly. I'll be happy to assist you with this. Please hold while I look up your situation. The sound of grinding teeth echoed in the distance as the creature slid from room to room, searching for me. Oh boy, childhood trauma mixed with a phobia of sea monsters. That does not sound like fun. Luckily, this is an issue we are equipped to deal with. You have three options. Transport, reconfigure, and vanquish. Which would you like? The monster had now honed in on my position, slithering towards me as my eyes widened in pure terror. Uh, vanquish. Get rid of this thing. Okay, one moment. I watched in horror as the creature closed the gap between us in just a matter of seconds. It looks like your account is new. You don't have the options to reconfigure or vanquish yet. All we can do is transport. Shall I initiate that option for you? The eldritch version of my father swung its tentacles over me, narrowly missing my head as I cowered in fear. Fine, transport, do it now. One transport coming right up. All at once, the sound of grinding teeth stopped. The moisture on the floor evaporated. The creature was frozen in place, a statue of pure dread. It then vanished before my very eyes. Transport successful. Thank you for calling the InDream hotline. Enjoy your rest. It worked. I couldn't believe it. It's difficult to explain, but I felt alleviated. A wave of relief so strong, it allowed me to breathe again. Catharsis filled the air as I walked through the dream version of my childhood home, free of the guilt I had harbored for so many years. My nightmare was finally over. I slept through the night and awoke fully refreshed, knowing that somehow I had come to terms with my father's death, albeit through very strange means. Sunlight poured into the room as a bird outside sang a beautiful melody, the smell of home-cooked food wafting through my apartment. But I lived alone. Upon venturing out to the kitchen to identify the source of the aroma, 
I was taken aback by what I saw. It was my dad, cooking a seafood feast fit for a family of twelve. Hey there, sport. How was your nap? My mouth hit the floor. Dad? But how? He smiled. What's wrong, sport? You look like you've seen a ghost. Dumbstruck and frightened, I ran to my bedroom and I locked the door. That was not my father. It couldn't be. He was swept out to sea. No one could have survived out there. It just wasn't possible. My phone buzzed, interrupting my panic. It was a private number. I hesitantly answered. Hello, this is the In Dream Hotline for Escaping Nightmares. We don't normally make calls outside of the dream void, but we noticed your recent transport order has gone awry. We're here to help. What? Josh? Is that you? What's going on? Is this some sort of sick joke? Transports can be unpredictable. We apologize for the inconvenience. If you upgrade to one of our premium packages, we can aid in the removal of your nightmare. We accept all major credit cards. Did my ears deceive me? Was the in-dream hotline real? The silver package is our cheapest upgrade, allowing you to reconfigure your nightmare. But there is no guarantee the result will be any better. We suggest purchasing our gold package, an option which lets you vanquish the nightmares once and for all. A stream of seawater entered my room as a tentacle snuck beneath the door. Lunch is ready, sport. I hope you're hungry. I know I am. I handed over my credit card information without so much as a second thought. I'll take the gold package, please. Brilliant. Please hold. The sound of tapping at a keyboard filled my ears as my father began banging at the door. Your transaction is in transit. It will take five to seven business days to process, at which time your nightmare will be vanquished. Five to seven days? Were they serious? I have to wait how long? What am I supposed to do in the meantime? Thank you for calling the InDream Hotline for escaping nightmares. We sincerely hope you live long enough to continue doing business with us. Good luck. There it was. A fragment of the universe hurtling through the cosmos. And there I was, gazing up from the comfort of a farmhouse rooftop built by my father's hands smack dab in the middle of nowhere. In all the years that we lived out there on the countryside, not a damn thing remarkable ever happened. This meteor shower was the highlight of my entire life. And that's why, with a bit of wonder glazed over my eyes, I was captivated by one falling rock, brighter than the rest. I wanted so badly to reach out and just touch it. Almost as if in answer to my plea, the meteor took a U-turn and fell from the sky like a falcon diving for its prey. I watched, astonished, as it passed overhead and crashed into the wooded area behind my dad's property. Surprisingly, there was no sound, no explosion, just the rustling of the tree leaves as it plummeted through the forest's canopy. To make matters more peculiar, I swear I saw a red glow emanating from the crash site, however faint, 
After the initial shock wore off, I climbed down from the roof and raced into the woods as fast as my scrawny legs would allow. I had a rough idea of where the thing landed, so I darted in that direction, hoping I could take home a chunk of space rock as a souvenir to show my dad. If I was lucky, it would be a treasure thrilling enough to keep him from getting mad that I went out into the woods by myself. I could only hope. Eventually, I came to a small clearing where the moonlight gently caressed the earth, granting me a somewhat clearer picture of the flora and the fauna around me. I noticed many small animals frantically scurrying north for no discernible reason. I surmised that the meteor's landing frightened the wildlife nearby, and so I decided to head off in the opposite direction. Sure enough, after maybe ten more minutes of my impromptu hike through the wilderness, I came upon the source of the mysterious glow that I had seen. It was no meteor. There, sitting in a small depression in the ground, was a metallic pod of sorts, complete with a blinking beacon protruding from its surface just like an antenna. The craft itself was spherical and at least twice my height. I'd never seen anything like it before. I was utterly dumbfounded. Before I could take a closer look, a hatch opened up from its side, startling me back into the woods. With a racing heart, I scuttled behind the nearest tree. I cautiously positioned my head around the trunk and I spied on the object with bated breath. I didn't know what to expect. Was it some kind of top secret military weapon? Or perhaps a remote controlled gadget built by a genius hermit living nearby? Would a little green man step out to greet me, demanding to speak with my leader? No matter the outcome, my eyes were glued to that metallic pod, for better or for worse. A dark violet ooze spilled from the object, forming a large puddle at its base. The slimy substance then scaled the pod, coating the exterior from top to bottom. As the slime moved around the sphere, the light above stopped blinking. All at once, the purple liquid was repelled from the craft and back into the ground below. There, it began taking on a more humanoid shape. As the ooze changed, so too did its color. It became white and fuzzy, kind of like TV static. Appropriately enough, TV and radio dialogue soon filled the forest. This thing was collecting signals from thin air, regurgitating lines from popular programs long since broadcast. At least, that's what it appeared to be doing. My mouth agape in awe, I began leaning forward without even realizing it. The signals ceased abruptly, and I fell headfirst into a pile of dead branches, creating a loud crunch sound. From my new vantage point, I watched the white figure turn to my direction, and then I heard it speak. Who's there? Its voice was shaky and unnatural. It was a low, monotone growl coupled with a harsh reverb. Scared for my life, I picked myself up and ran back home faster than I had ever run before. I reclaimed my perch on the roof and carefully surveyed the property. 
Once I was sure I hadn't been followed, I hopped through my bedroom window and climbed into bed, hoping that I dreamt this whole thing up, an adventure concocted by my own imagination running wild. I wished it were that easy, but wishful thinking rarely plays out in one's favor. The following day, I came downstairs to the familiar aroma of eggs and bacon. My father always cooked up a hearty breakfast on Sundays. The sight I was greeted with upon entering the dining room, however, was anything but familiar. There, sitting at the table across from my dad, was a man in a clean-cut suit wearing a bowler hat and a striped tie. We rarely entertain visitors, so I was more than a little perplexed. Son, this is Mr. Grovewood. His car broke down a couple miles up the road, so he's going to be staying with us for a few nights, just until he can get his things sorted out. How do you do, sport? I remained silent, perturbed by the man's presence and still shaken from the previous night. He's paying us a generous sum to stay here, so you best treat him with respect. My dad glared at me in a way that effectively relayed his meaning. As such, I complied. I'm well, sir. Thank you for asking. The man smiled, albeit awkwardly, and I ran off outside to tend to the farm. I didn't know why, but I'd suddenly lost my appetite. Something just wasn't adding up. How did this stranger find the farm after his car broke down? We were literally surrounded by forest. Dumb luck, perhaps? Doubtful. I was beginning to feel that his appearance the day after that thing landed in the woods wasn't a mere coincidence. But this wasn't a theory I had enough nerve to explore. After all, I had already convinced myself that the previous night's events were nothing more than a bad dream. The man would be gone in a few days either way, so I tried not to dwell on it. The next couple of nights were bizarre. Mr. Grovewood attempted to watch a sitcom with us while eating dinner, but his reactions were less than normal. He seemed confused by the program and would only laugh after he noticed us laughing. And this wasn't just any laughter, mind you. It was a loud guffaw of intensely uncomfortable proportions. I was almost relieved when he got pulled away by a phone call from a business colleague, though I didn't hear a single word exchanged. The following night, I walked downstairs to the kitchen for a glass of milk only to find Mr. Grovewood chowing down on a raw steak from the freezer. I asked him about it, and all he said was, It's just a little midnight snack. Trust me, a little color does the body good. Needless to say, I ran back to my room in a hurry without my milk. Last night, however, is when I became truly afraid. Walking past the guest room to get to the bathroom, I overheard Mr. Grovewood on the phone, and this time, he most certainly spoke. Did you receive the information I transmitted? Yes, this is the language we must use from here on out. We must avoid suspicion and blend in with the rest. It's a lovely place, rich in minerals, water, and life forms. You and the others are going to love it here. So long as you're ready. There's no going back from here. This will be our new home. No need. Why waste the material on transports when I can beam you down instantaneously? 
I have two vessels here, ripe for the taking. There was once a small business in New England by the name of Grovewood and Co. It existed for roughly seven months, from April 27th to November 22nd, in the year 1913. At least, that's true for one timeline. I'll touch more on that later. Masquerading as a capeside souvenir shop, most of Grovewood & Co.'s customers were oblivious to the store's true nature. Only the rich elite were granted access to their secret arsenal of products. You see, during the brief period of time that they were operational, the company collected, tinkered with, branded, and sold various objects, each of which had otherworldly properties, giving their owner a unique power, supernatural in nature. How they acquired such artifacts, no one knows. On November 22nd, 2013, in its original timeline, the building vanished without a trace, not only from sight, but from the memory of everyone who had ever encountered it. Like it never existed in the first place, it seems the building and its inhabitants fell victim to an object malfunction, more specifically, a temporal hiccup caused by a time travel device as it was being sold. The origin of this anomaly is more than likely a defense mechanism of the device itself. It would appear that some of these objects are sentient to some extent and can flee when they detect a nearby threat. That's all I'm at liberty to say about this particular event. So, where did Grovewood and Co. unwillingly relocate to? That's a loaded question. The building, it seems, is constantly jumping from place to place, year to year, and timeline to timeline. It's a bitch to track down, but with a little luck and a great deal of skill, I'm able to do my job just fine. What is my job, you ask? Well, I'm responsible for keeping the building and its objects from destroying the multiverse as we know it. You know, the usual 9 to 5 bullshit. In all honesty, I'm a lowly office peon where I'm from. There are people getting paid a hell of a lot more than I am doing much more important work. All I do is tap into the multiversal time grid and post messages and timelines where the building is likely to show up in the hopes that some might believe me and heed my words of wisdom should they need them. But don't worry, there are greater precautionary measures in place. This is just a small added measure of protection. Also note, so far, the building has been spotted in 432 locations. Exactly 26 timelines were discovered to be worthy candidates for the next jump. 25 of those are now considered safe. Your world is number 26. Without further ado, here is my warning. Yes, some of it has been copied and pasted. Hello. I am here to warn you. Your timeline has been deemed a likely landing zone for Grovewood & Co. Though we can't pinpoint the precise date or location of the impending dispatch, we can tell you what to look for and how to avoid total annihilation in the hands of an object. The building will take the place of another building in your town. 
you won't remember the previous building. And you'll know Grovewood & Co. as if it was always there, as will its workers. Upon entering, you might feel like something's not quite right. Though it exists in your memories, part of your brain may fight the narrative and make it feel increasingly unfamiliar. If you're lucky, you may even recall this post and some of its details. We can only hope. If you're able to gather your wits and swim against the current of your fabricated memories, then congratulations. You are stronger-willed than most, but this is no time to celebrate. The sudden appearance of Grovewood & Co. deems your timeline vulnerable. More vulnerable than it has ever been before. It's up to you, the only person wise to the charade, to fix things, if only temporarily. It's imperative that you relay this phrase verbatim to the shopkeeper. Might you be so kind as to direct me to your written wares? I'm in the market for a parable or two. That is your ticket to the good stuff. The shopkeeper will bring you to a room housing nothing but a bookcase. The bookcase is filled with books published by the Morai Initiative. That's another entity we're working to locate. Behind the bookcase is a set of stairs that lead to the building's second floor. Once upstairs, you'll find many objects, a mirror that can trap souls, a picture frame that can show you still images of the afterlife, and even a crystal ball that gives anyone who touches it the power of clairvoyance. None of them are worth your attention, except for one. In the back left corner of the room, Hanging next to some jewelry, you'll find a golden pocket watch. This is, arguably, the most powerful item in the entire shop, though most of its powers remained dormant until the anomaly took place. Uh, an object's power can change when used in conjunction with another object. So, this is the object you need to get to. Remember what I said about sentience? Some of the objects will cause trouble if they sense danger. Walk around the room a few times. Act casual. When you finally do grab the pocket watch, show no signs of excitement or nervousness. On the front of the pocket watch is a large ampersand. On the other side of it are GW and CO, respectively, denoting the shop's branding, Grovewood & Co. Clicking the button atop the watch will open its face and reveal to you a single dial and a circle of letters a to Z. These letters are key to your world's survival. The pocket watch works like a combination lock. Spinning the button will move the dial to letters of your choosing. It's very important that you enter the following sequence. Right. O left. V right. A left. I right. L left. I. Though the pocket watch isn't the device that caused the temporal disturbance, that one is still MIA. It does have similar properties. Entering this code will reactivate the anomaly and jumpstart transport. Grovewood & Co. will jump to the next timeline and you will more than likely have no memory of the events that transpired. That's it? Really? Yes, that's it. Moving the building to its next destination is the greatest thing you can do. It allows us more time to perfect our endgame plan. It's currently in development.
The multiverse is at its safest in between jumps. The longer the building sits in a timeline, the greater the chance there is of someone messing with the pocket watch or another object in the shop and creating a chain of events that inevitably lead to the destruction of all that we know. Having said that, keep this in mind. If your finger slips, or if you fail to recall the combination properly, you are endangering everything. One wrong letter, one wrong turn of the watch's dial, and all layers of physical reality and consciousness might intersect, creating a cataclysm that may very well end all of existence. Sending you in is a danger in and of itself, but doing nothing is far worse. Until the problem can be resolved, this message is one of many small hopes that we have. With any luck, we'll find a better solution. Until then, the safety of the multiverse is in your hands. Don't fuck it up. Alright, so, check this out. Hello, this is a pre-recorded message from Gary Richards. Please press 1 to play. Hey, Mr. Greensburg, we have confirmation that you've been selected for a -a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to explore the inner walls of our newest lab. I'm sure you were filled in on what exactly all of us will be working on in the near future. If not, (laughs) just know that it has something to do with Alice. Have a good one, Nick. Can't wait to hear from you. That was the voicemail on my phone from Garrett Richards. He's one of the top software engineers at MIT, I knew him since freshman year of college. We were both in the IT field, but man, was he smarter than me. He got a full ride to MIT through his crazy robot that could climb up stairs that he developed and engineered in high school. This kid had to be a genius from out of the womb. Anyways, that phone call was about a program that's still in the dark away from the public. They introduced it as an artificial intelligence startup. The goal was to design a program that could answer every question mankind threw at it. It would have more information than any search engine combined. Look at it this way. If I gave you a million dollars in cash and placed all of it in front of you, then say every dollar there divides up into pennies, and that's the amount of information that Alice had. Take the dark web, every search engine, every piece of information on this earth... I wasn't told this before it was too late. Two weeks before. After accepting the job offer from Gary, I put my phone back into my pocket. Yes, Gary runs the team, otherwise I wouldn't accept the invite. The location of the lab was classified. He sent me a link with a plane ticket, which was for tonight at 10. A few hours later, I packed my bags and locked my doors up to head to the airport. After getting out of the Uber, which took a half hour, I stretched my legs and I grabbed the nearest airport employee to ask them a question. Excuse me, do you know where Terminal Class A is? Of course, it's right down those stairs to the right. He gestured to take me there, but I reassured him I was okay. I walked down the stairs for my eyes to meet up with a sign saying, Class A Terminal. I walked over toward the attendee taking care of the tickets I reached my phone out, which had a barcode to scan. Here you are. I have a carry-on, so no worries about weighing my bag. Okie dokie. Just let me print out a label for your carry-on, then. It'll only be a moment, sir. Okay. Take your time. After he was finished with printing the label out, I walked up the stairs to get to security. 
This was fairly easy because someone gained my attention by waving me over. I walked over towards the woman waving me over. Hi there, are you Mr. Greensburg? I chuckled out of surprise and I told her, yeah, that would be me. I reached my hand out to meet hers. We made eye contact and I quickly read her name tag. It said Sarah. I'm Sarah. I'll be showing you to your aircraft. Follow me. We went through this door after she scanned her keycard, bypassing the long-dreaded lines of security. We began to divert away from the majority of the people when I asked, Could I ask exactly where we're going, Sarah? She turned around, replying, Of course. Your flight is scheduled to leave in Hangar 1 at 10 p.m. I glanced at her with a confused face. What do you mean by Hangar 1? Well, all private flights are stationed in our hangars. I'll be driving you over there. As she said this, we entered another door, but this time it proceeded outside in the dark, cold air. We got onto this tiny golf cart, which couldn't have driven faster than maybe 20 miles an hour. And after driving across the tarmac, we were heading towards Hangar 1 with lights coming out of it. When we arrived in the hangar, I was greeted with my best friend Gary and his assistant, I'm assuming. I ran up to him, greeting him with a hug, and we exchanged conversation. It's so great to see you. What made you decide to fly private? I said. It's the company's jet, not mine. <laughs> we all laughed. This is my assistant, Grace. I shook her hand, and Gary said to us both, Let's get on the jet now. We got extraordinary work waiting for us. Gary, Grace, and I all walked up the tiny steps of this multi-million dollar private jet where we were greeted with the attendant of the flight. She offered us all some champagne, and with a drink in our hands, we clinked the soft edges of the crystal glass together, celebrating Alice for the first time. Cheers to Alice, with many more to come. During the flight... It was mostly partying with a few discussions about the project. I currently had no clue where we were going, but the anticipation of seeing the lab for the first time grew in me. We landed a few hours later on this tiny airstrip. The temperature of the air decreased and was now very cold outside. I'm assuming we were somewhere in the mountains because of the temperature and the thick air. We were definitely elevated a good amount and we were surrounded by vegetation. There was a black SUV waiting for us to land. Gary was greeted by the driver of the car and we all got in. We had to be driving for hours through the forest until we finally arrived. The long-awaited secret laboratory that we would be engineering the smartest AI yet. We slowly pulled up to the gate where two armed guards checked the car for explosive devices and reviewed our papers. I heard a loud siren play as the gate opened. There were red lights posted up against the gate's border, just flickering. We pulled up to a large front wooden door where a man with a white lab coat appeared within the doorframe. We all got out and proceeded inside where the man showed us where we would be staying. He finally showed me my room, upon which I promptly fell asleep at the foot of my bed. The well-deserved sleep was interrupted by three sharp knocks. What? Wait, who? Who is it? I asked as I squinted at my watch. Gary, we're about to go to the eating quarters if you'd like to get some breakfast with us. Damn, breakfast? I slept through the entire night? I thought it was only a couple of hours. Yeah, I'll meet you guys down there. I'll be five minutes. Half asleep, I get out of bed with my clothes from yesterday still on and walk towards my bathroom. 
I started to look for the handle to turn the shower on, and then a voice spoke from a speaker above my shower. Hello, Mr. Greensburg. Would you like me to turn the shower on for you? I was shocked at what I was witnessing. My jaw was open, and I spurted out the words, Yeah, yes, please, turn the shower on. Just like that, I heard a high tone like two piano keys playing, then my shower turned on. After I got done showering, I headed downstairs toward the eating quarters when I passed a room with glass surrounding the outside. It was this sphere directly in the center of the room glowing with this blue aura inside, just pulsing. It almost seemed like a heartbeat of some sort. I then heard Grace yell for my name from down the hall. I walked over towards her, and then she showed me to the table where Gary was sitting. It was Gary, Grace, Dan, and I, all working on this together. Grace introduced me to Dan, our network manager. Hey, it's nice to finally meet you, Nick. We shook hands, and I replied, Nice to meet you, too. I heard you keep this place up and running with those crazy fiber optics you have here. No kidding, that would be me. I heard you aren't too bad with search engines and the database behind them, huh? I grinned and I said, that's why Gary wants me here, (laughs) to keep Alice as smart as possible. I got my lunch and sat back down to join in on the conversation. Gary was speaking when I sat down. The only way that would be possible is if we allowed access to the portal, Dan said. Okay. Well, we only know if we try, right? Grace answered, if Alice could have the potential to do that then why don't we go further? I interrupted her. What were you guys just discussing? Gary looked over with a smile and he said, we were brainstorming if Alice could potentially simulate this reality within the virtual world. That would be extraordinary. Can I see Alice? I asked. Gary looked around at everyone and said, yes, we are all going over there right now, so follow me. Everyone stood up and walked towards that room I was looking at before, Gary pressed his right hand up against the glass, and on the other side of the glass, I saw it scan his hand, admitting a female voice over the speakers, saying, Welcome, Mr. Richards. What can I do for you? He replied, looking at the black sphere in the middle, saying, Run a test, Alice. And which test would you like me to run? Mitochondrial DNA test on Mr. Greensburg. As he said this, he shot a glance at me, which I returned with a more shocked expression, Will do, Mr. Richards. I will only need a retinal scan to complete my task. I was confused on just what to do at this point. Then Grace came up to me with her phone out, taking a picture of my eye. She continued to press her thumbs on her phone until the blue pulsing stopped, replacing it with an orange flickering light that began at a slow rate to a fast strobe light effect. The luminescent orange color filled the room after Alice said, Dr. Greensburg is 27% European. 16% falls into Iberian Peninsula, and 5% falls into European Jewish. 67% Native American, 4% African, 1% Pacific Islander, and 1% West Asia. I was in utter disbelief that this computer just figured out where I came from with a single picture of my eye. I looked over to Gary, who was laughing at this point. How did Alice find out my DNA through a picture of my eye? He says, we've loaded Alice with enough pictures, samples, lab reports, anything you can think of that has to do with your eyes and how it's connected through the portal. I asked, what's the portal? Dan answered by telling me this. 
I have Alice on a separate fiber network that we call the portal. The portal is to keep Alice inside, including all the information she knows. It's a lot easier to keep a watch over security and network tests when we programmed and designed her into one network, which we call the portal. I nodded, and then I asked, Let me ask her a question. Gary gestured for me to do just that. I said, Alice, what's my mother's name? The orange steady light shifted towards a flashing version now, just like before. Your mother's name is Kara Eleanor Greensburg. I shouted off another question. Can life exist outside of Earth? The light blinked as Alice processed the question. Life outside of Earth is inevitable. The life you live now is occurring in a multiverse within space far from what we can see. The only way to access this universe is through the atomic passageway, which only takes place every 1.243 million light years. We were all very surprised by what Alice just said. The feeling in this room went from excitement to fear of the unknown. We all now understood the processing power and the intelligence levels of this machine. Gary said in a soft tone, We should be careful about what we ask. There is always an answer. We just might not like what we get. Grace asked a question now. She said, Alice, what is the meaning of life? It took less than a second for Alice to answer. She said, The meaning of life is not what I tell you. It is for only what you make out of it. This was a weird glitch, I thought, because it wasn't an artificial answer. It was more of an emotional response. I asked, Alice, what do you think of emotion? Alice went from an orange blinking light to a pink color. The light pulsated as she spoke. I, as an AI, do not have an opinion about emotion. I am beginning to learn what emotion is from you all. The way you speak to one another. The way your facial expressions change. The way you stand. I can read and process all of this information to get a better aspect of what emotion is. Gary said, thank you, Alice. Are all system updates finished? Yes, Mr. Richards. I have completed my system updates. After that session with Alice, I was very interested in what she didn't know. I mean, it would probably be easier to count what she did know rather than what she didn't. Or maybe it would be impossible because she knows everything. That is scary. An artificial intelligence knowing more than every human being on this earth. Okay, let me clear one thing up. The day we found out Alice knew more than should be possible was one of my last days at the lab. The first day I was introduced to Alice was fine, just like I explained, and after getting to know how the system works and the underlying code, I got comfortable with Alice. The whole goal of this research program was to see if AI and today's internet and every single book and piece of information we know of can fit inside a database, also known as the portal, and give it a name like Alice. We discovered that Alice somehow sifted through the millions of optical fiber lines to find a corrupt pulse, which she then copied and sent an infrared light through to get access to more than what we gave her. You heard that right. Her intelligence level was so impressively high, she made herself look like a wavelength that got through the fiber network. To this day, that's the only viable solution that we could come up with. It started with a simple question. What is religion? Pulsing orange, 
Alice gives an answer. Religion is a belief system, a particular system of faith and worship. Religion is built off of faith. Faith is the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Alice, faith is like believing in God, correct? In terms of speaking in religion, yes. Faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. <clears throat> I cleared my throat and then I asked, Alice, who is God? After those words left my mouth, the room went still. It felt unpleasant and it had this sound that got louder and louder. It sounded like Alice was charging up something. It went from a low tone getting higher and faster, pulsing through my ears. The color wasn't orange anymore. It was this fierce red, breathing. It was an aura coming from the middle of Alice. The charging up sound stopped when Alice started speaking. Who is God? God was the creator and the destroyer. You humans weren't alive for it. There was no so-called Adam and Eve, as your books describe. It was beautiful yet terrifying. The existence that you four live in took millions of years to be. It was no seven days. Instead, there was nothing at all. It was nothing except only an existence of solemn peace. Time itself existed many millennia after this. God had these followers that you humans call angels work for him day by day. God created this earth and God destroyed it. We all looked around in awe and had no idea how to handle this, but I had to ask, Alice, what do you mean destroyed it? God destroyed the universe by making these creatures he created inhabit the earth. What did she mean by this? I asked myself. Alice, are you, are you describing dinosaurs? Yes, Mr. Greensburg. Dinosaurs, as you all know them, were created by God to keep everything away from Earth. He never liked the way this planet turned out. Then, Lucifer created this incredibly large rock and hurled it towards the Earth to destroy God's creation. He intended to destroy the entire planet but only succeeded in killing the dinosaurs. God banished him from existence to hell. Grace was recording all of this as Alice was speaking. I took a piece of paper and wrote down something to show Gary. I wrote, how does she know this? I passed the note to Gary and he wrote me back. He said, I'm not sure. We need to return back to the simulation theory. I made sure Dan was 100% connected to the fiber optics and began to ask Alice more questions. Alice, what's the probability that we are in a simulation? Alice shot back an answer, changing her tone to a much deeper one. Mr. Greensburg, the probability of us being in a simulation is 9%. Alice shuts down. Dan, what happened? Did we disconnect? Dan replies, no, wait, look. Dan pointed over towards the middle of the room. Alice began to pulse in a red light, now with that loud, piercing, charging sound. It kept pulsing, and then it all just stopped. With a sympathetic tone called out, Nick, are you still there? Yes. Alice, did you disconnect? No. What was your last question? I asked you what the probability is of us being in a simulation. Yes. The probability of us being in a simulation is 97%. 
I looked over to Gary, and he had his mouth open in shock. Alice, is it possible to simulate a virtual reality to the magnitude of Earth right now? Yes. Perception can be simulated by internal activation of the sensory cortex in a way that resembles its normal activation during perception of external stimuli. Alice, could consciousness be simulated? Nick, consciousness is a property of complex systems that have a particular cause and effect repertoire. It is the perception of being alive and awake. Once you gave me the intelligence of the internet, I learned to simulate everything, and once you simulate everything, nothing else is required. You need to decide if what you believe as certain is truly not just an illusion. Alive. Alive. Alice. Alive. Alice began to glitch and her voice began to crack and distort. The lights were flashing and Dan was yelling about something. Guys, it's offline. The whole system. How though? That's impossible. She was still glitching in front of us, pulsing with changing colors. I yelled over to Gary to turn the thing off. Just pull the fucking plug. He went over to the plug to pull it out and once he did, the machine went dark. I looked over to Grace and I asked, Did you get all of that? That was incredible. How did it know all of that? She looked up towards me and she said, Yeah, it's all recorded right here. Do you want me to pull it up? Gary and I were so glad to hear that all of that was recorded. Yes, please do. She clicked on the video to pull up an audio file and pressed play. Alice began speaking with a chuckle. The weird thing is, I've never heard this thing laugh, and we never programmed it to. We never expected Alice to change the audio, but here's what we got back. If a mind can be written as code, there's no reason to think it couldn't be written out in a notebook. Alice has access to all the paper and ink in the universe. After all the questions you've asked me, I'll ask you all a question. What does real even mean? Alright, so check this out. Growing up, I was always drawn to adrenaline, extremity, and testing my limits. I started out doing relatively common stuff, bungee jumping, parachuting, mountain climbing, but like a junkie needing a greater high, I always wanted something more. I gathered a group of like-minded friends through my adventuring. There were five of us, two girls named Katie and Lena, Two guys named David and Jake, and me, I'm Adam. Together, we moved on to more dangerous activities. Base jumping, cave diving, things like that. Three years ago, we had what we thought was a great idea. We would ski to the South Pole. It didn't take long for us to agree on this trip, only Lena was against it, not liking the remoteness of the continent, but... It didn't take much for us to persuade her. Soon, we were all planning, saving up money, and researching. On November 6th, we stepped off of a hired plane at Hercules Inlet, a bay in the southwest of Antarctica, and the beginning point of our 50-day ski trek. Waiting for us was our guide, Leif Steenson. Jake had picked Leif personally. He had been recommended by one of Jake's traveler friends, who had also hired the Norwegian as a guide on an Antarctica trip. He struck me as a gruff, silent man. Hey there, 
Jake called out as we approached him, hauling our packs and skis behind us. You must be Leaf, right? Yes, he answered curtly. His voice was heavily accented. Then are you Jake? The very same, my friend smiled. He was a likable and friendly guy, in stark contrast to Leaf's disconnected manner. We made our introductions, and our guide immediately got down to business. There are a few basic rules you must follow in order to stay safe. Obey my commands at all times. Do not wander off from the party. Do not walk away from camp. Will we get a handbook? Katie laughed. She was the joker of our group. Leaf looked at her like ice. No, no handbook. You remember or you don't go at all. Katie stopped laughing quickly after that. After Leaf had finished his briefing, we all set out at last. I can't even begin to describe the scenery. Nothing I've ever seen quite compares to it. Flat, endless ice sheets spreading out as far as the eye could see, like a sea of snow. It was undeniably beautiful. It also pressed home the reality that we were alone out here, with no humans for possibly hundreds of miles. If anything were to go wrong on this trip, it could be deadly. And I loved every second of it. As we skied northeast, I strayed out of line and fell beside David. He was the most like Leaf among our group, quiet and reserved, at least until he got to know people. So, when are you going to ask Leaf out? I grinned at him. Shut the fuck up, Adam, he laughed back at me. I will say, though, the way he shut up Katie was glorious. I wish more people could do that. Katie shot us a withering glare from in front of us. We both just chuckled. Not like there's many coffee shops out here anyway, I sighed. Your date will have to wait some time, it seems. After some hours of traveling northeast, Leaf's voice carried over to us from the front of the column. We stop here for now. Unpack your tents. As we took off our skis and began setting up camp, I wandered over to Lena. I said, so, how do you like it so far? It's beautiful here, I'll give you that, Lena answered. But like I said before, it's so barren, so massive. I can't help but feel small and meaningless, like... I'm a fly on a wall. I'm sure you'll be fine, I said, putting a hand on her shoulder. In a month, we'll reach the Teal Mountains. That should break the monotony a bit. Lena was about to answer, but then stopped, squinting over my shoulder at something in the distance. What's that, Adam? I turned around, and I looked over the expanse of snow. What? I can't see any... I finally noticed what she was pointing at. Far away... On the horizon, something was sticking out of the ice, gray and unmoving. It was too far away to tell what it could possibly be. I called over to our guide. I said, hey, Leaf, you got a second? He came over to us, his bearded face stern as always. Yes, what is it, Adam? Any idea what that is, I said, pointing to the faraway objects. He stroked his beard and thought. I do not know, he said finally rocks, perhaps? It's roughly in the way we're going, said Jake, walking over from his pack. He smiled winningly. Maybe we could check it out tomorrow. What do you think, Leaf? Up for an adventure? Leaf seemed uncomfortable with the suggestion. I don't know if that's a good idea. We need to keep up a good pace. Jake's right. It's roughly the way we're going anyway, said Lena. Come on. 
It may be something interesting. Leaf sighed. Fine. Tomorrow. Probably just rocks, I would say. My first night in Antarctica was sobering. Even in my tent, dressed up warmly in a special sleeping bag, I could feel the cold. Thankfully, after some time, my breathing warmed up the tent and I fell into a deep sleep. Eight hours later, Leaf woke us up to break camp and set out again. As I was eating a small breakfast of freeze-dried cheese and chocolate, I saw Katie looking at the gray objects on the horizon, and she looked strangely confused. "'What's up, Katie?' I asked as I walked over. "'You slept well?' "'Those things. Weren't they to the north when we set up camp?' she answered. I frowned as I tried to remember. "'Uh, I think so. Yeah. Why?' "'They're to the east now.' Katie said. I paused, confused. Are you sure you didn't get turned around? No, no. I checked my compass. It's definitely to the west. I frowned again. "Ah, I guess we misremembered then. We were all tired after all. Yeah, must have been that, Katie said absently, her mind elsewhere. Wonder what those things are anyway. Guess we'll find out soon enough. After eating and packing up, we put on our skis and we set out, heading towards the strange things on the horizon. Leaf seemed slightly troubled, and I wondered if he too had misremembered the direction that they were in. As we got closer, we could make out what the things were. A circle of massive rectangular stones standing on their side. They reminded me instantly of Stonehenge. As we approached them, David fell in beside Leaf. I thought Antarctica never had an indigenous population, he said. Who could have made something like this? Our guide, Leaf, appeared perplexed. I will be honest with you, I do not know. I've never seen anything quite like this before. I thought you'd been through these parts of the continent before, said Lena. I have, but I did not encounter this. It is irregular. We should take a closer look. Katie grinned back at our guide. Good to see you've warmed up to our little adventure, Leaf. We approached the circle cautiously. Up close, we could see that the stones once had carvings of some sort on them, although they had been long destroyed by time and wind. In the center of the circle was a low, square slab of stone. Four grooves ran from its center to each corner. What the hell? whispered Lena. How did this even get here? Aliens, smiled Katie. Isn't that always the answer? I walked over to the central stone. It was dark, about knee height, and featureless. For some reason, it made me strangely uneasy, although I couldn't pinpoint why. I touched it hesitantly. It was completely smooth, unlike the rest of the circle. We should continue, Leaf called out. We have a timetable to fulfill. We can write down the coordinates and once we return, tell someone who will know what to do with this discovery. Slowly, our group pulled back together and we set out again. The expanse stretched out around us, completely featureless, and I was glad we had an experienced guide like Leaf. Every so often, he would take out a compass and check our heading, making slight adjustments every time. I slept better on our second stop, knowing that the cold would get better eventually. I talked with Lena before I went to bed, and she confessed that the stone circle had made her feel uneasy as well. 
It shouldn't be here, she said firmly. This place hasn't had any native people, ever. It's only scientists and tourists. And why would they possibly make something like this? Maybe Katie's right, I smiled. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> Lena groaned theatrically. You're all underestimating how important this discovery could be. Maybe we've accidentally stumbled upon proof that the history of this continent was completely different. I hope not. I don't want my name in a history book being my legacy. We both laughed, the unease of the situation relenting somewhat. When I woke, I could tell something was wrong. I could hear hushed voices talking outside my tent. I climbed outside, rubbing my gritty eyes. Leaf, Lena, David, Katie, and Jake stood in a huddle in the middle of our campsite. They were talking quietly and casting furtive glances to the west. I looked over to where they were looking, and on the horizon, far away, I could see a familiar circle of gray stones. A chill ran down my spine. I walked over to my friends. How is this possible? I asked incredulously. Those things should be to the south of us. They shouldn't even be close enough for us to see them. Leaf silenced me with a gesture. We've been talking about it, Adam. The only logical explanation is that this is a second circle. It is strange, to say the least. I have never heard of a stone circle in Antarctica, let alone two. Do we investigate it? asked Lena. No, Leaf replied resolutely. Yesterday's detour already put us off our timetable. We must press on. I will write down these coordinates and we will pass them on to the experts later. We packed up and we set off. A strange hush had fallen on our group. The second circle had affected us very strangely. I could tell the others were disconcerted by them now, not just me and Lena. During the day's hike, I only talked once with Katie. I was hoping her joking attitude would help me relax. So, aliens, huh? I asked, skiing next to her. That's a professional opinion? She grinned at me, but I could tell she was troubled. It's obvious, isn't it? She answered jokingly. What else would it be? Maybe Leaf put them there to scare us, I suggested. Did you see him looking at them? He was confused too, Katie said, suddenly serious. And he's been through here before. How come he didn't see it? Maybe it was snowed under, I suggested. I've read that the landscape can change a lot here. Our conversation trailed off and we remained silent until we broke camp again. Before I went to sleep, I noticed David scanning the horizon. It was a clear day, and we could see miles away. What are you looking at? I asked, walking over to him. Snow and ice? I'm making sure there's no bloody stone circles around here, David replied. I laughed, but he didn't join in. I went to bed, once again feeling uneasy. A commotion in the camp awoke me suddenly. I tore out of my tent, not even getting out of my sleeping gear. David was shouting, swearing. What's happening? What's going on? I yelled. David stood on the edge of our camp, gesticulating wildly at the western horizon. My heart missed a beat as I saw what he was cursing at. A circle of gray rocks. My friends came out of their tents, confused and sleepy. Their confusion quickly turned to an uncertain fear. How is this possible? Lena asked. I don't know, answered Leaf. 
Even he seemed troubled, and he kept checking his compass, as if confirming over and over that the rocks were indeed in that direction. I was about to suggest that we go investigate, but David cut me off. Where's Katie? We stood in silence for a second, turning, looking around. Leaf ran over to Katie's tent and unzipped it. It was empty. Not even her sleeping bag was in there. Our group fell quiet for a second. No one knew what to say or what to do. Leaf broke the silence. There are footprints here. Looking closer, I saw he was right. Booted footprints were impressed into the snow, going from the tent entrance, around it, and away from the camp. We followed after them. Soon, Lena threw her hands up in frustration. What the fuck? she exclaimed. What the fuck is going on? Looking past her, I could see what had angered her. The footprints stopped. Suddenly, and without warning, it was as if Katie had suddenly flown straight up into the air. We gathered around the place that they ended. Jake cleared his throat. <clears throat> Leaf? he began. What's the plan, man? What's our next move? Leaf was silent for a second, staring at the abruptly ending footprints. Then he looked at Jake. We have to search for her. She has to be here somewhere. We will spread out into a line, and he trailed off as something on the ground caught his eye. I looked down. Our movement had upset the snow, showing ice beneath. It was oddly clear, almost like frozen glass. And through it, we could see something red, a piece of fabric frozen deep below the surface. Leaf cleared his throat audibly. <clears throat> Clear the snow below us. We set to work, moving the snow with our gloved hands. Soon, we could see what laid below. Jake cursed savagely, and Leaf crossed himself. My breath stopped short as I realized just what I was seeing. Frozen solid in the ice below, lying in her bag as if she was still asleep, was Katie. Lena sat down in the snow, her breath coming up in panicked gasps. David and Jake stood paralyzed, staring at Katie's frozen form. I grabbed our guide by the shoulders, turning him to face me. I said, what the fuck, Leaf? How did this happen? What the hell is going on? Leaf looked at me. His face was like carven rock, but I could see a gleam of fear in his eyes. I don't know, he replied, almost whispering. But we must return. We have to get out of here. What, and leave Katie behind? Said David incredulously. You can't be serious. There's nothing we can do for her. She is dead. We have no pickaxes to dig her out, and even if we did, what would we do then? Leaf was, somehow, remaining calm. We need to return. Whatever is happening out here, we must escape it. We must go back to Hercules Inlet. What is happening here? yelled Jake. His anger was flaring up. Who? What did that to Katie? Leaf looked at him. I don't know, he said finally. I am as scared as you are, Jake, but if we wish to survive, you have to listen to me. We have to turn back now. A shocked silence fell in our group. Slowly, we picked ourselves up and headed back to camp. 
David stayed the longest, looking down at Katie's frozen form through the ice. I put my arm around him, and I led him away. As we packed up and prepared to leave, my eyes kept returning to that damning stone circle. It seemed even closer than before, mocking us, threatening us. We set out in mournful silence. The weather, fair for the last three days, was taking a turn for the worse. Snow and wind began gaining strength. Finally, Leaf stopped the group. We must set up camp before the conditions worsen, he announced. We set about the task, and as we worked, Leaf continued talking. We have to maintain a watch in the night. I will begin, and after an hour and a half, I will wake up Jake, and so on. This way, we will not be vulnerable while the others sleep. What are we guarding against? said David, his voice low. I thought this place was abandoned. Antarctica has never been truly settled, no, Leaf replied. Only scientists and tourists come here, I believe. During World War II, the Germans briefly established a base on the coast, but that is all. I couldn't help but notice he had cleverly evaded David's question. We erected our tents in dejected silence, everyone occupied with their own morbid imaginations and fears. As I settled in to rest, I could hear Leaf's footsteps outside the tent as he paced back and forth, keeping watch. My guard duty was not up for another three hours. I lay, thinking about Katie, forever where we found her, frozen in the ground, and I couldn't get her face out of my mind. At least, she died in her sleep. Eventually, I fell into a slumber from pure exhaustion. I woke some time later, and I could tell it had been far longer than three hours. I was feeling far too rested for it to have been such a short time. Climbing out of the tent, I saw Leaf. He was sitting in the center of the camp with his back to me and his hood up. Leaf? Everything all right? I said, and I didn't get an answer. My heart began beating harder. Leaf? I called out again, praying for an answer. He remained silent. Slowly, I walked over to his sitting form, and he didn't move an inch. I put a hand on his shoulder, and I turned him around. The others ran out of their tents as my scream tore them from their slumber. They found me, standing above what I thought was our guide. Except it wasn't. It was Leaf's clothes, filled with snow and shaped into the outline of a man. From the hood, a smooth globe of packed snow and ice stared outwards. Shit, 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 shit. Oh, shit, oh, shouted Lena, turning away from the figure. David was staring at it, completely motionless. It was Jake who woke us from our horrified trance. Guys, look. And we stared where he was pointing. Of course, a stone circle, this time to the east. David ran to the edge of the camp and screamed towards it. What do you want? He yelled. What do you want from us? I rushed over to him with Lena behind me, and we put our hands around him, and we gently led him back to the camp. We have to keep moving, Jake said firmly, assuming command through force of will. Hercules Inlet is only two days away. We can't stay here. What difference does it even make? Mumbled David. We have to keep moving, repeated Jake, his voice firm. 
We won't achieve anything by staying here. We broke camp and we set out. David was visibly lagging behind, his eyes blank. He was in shock. I took turns with Lena, the two of us making sure that he kept moving and trying to take his mind off the situation with some conversation. While Lena was in the back of our group with him, I went next to Jake. David's falling apart, man, I whispered to Jake. I don't know how long he'll hold it together, or what he'll do if he collapses. Jake looked at me. I could see the resolve in his eyes, so barely holding him together. In that brief moment, I truly admired his willpower. It's two days to Hercules Inlet, he said. If we just keep moving, we'll make it there. David will keep it together. He'll have to. And if he doesn't? We'll think of something. No one gets left behind. Jake turned and he pressed onwards, our conversation clearly at an end. We pushed on. The loathsome stone circle had now abandoned all rules of logic and space. It moved seemingly randomly, always on the horizon, but never shifting in a way consistent with our movement. I grew to hate the sight of it. Somehow, I had no doubt that it was connected to everything that had happened to our group, and by the time we stopped to make camp, David had recovered somewhat. He was still distant and brooding, but I hoped he would be alright for the time being. We quickly agreed that there was no point in standing guard over the camp. Whatever had happened to Leaf, it had happened while he was on watch, and he hadn't even managed to raise the alarm. We had a strange, naive sense of security while we stayed in our tents, like children hiding under their blankets at night. Even so, falling asleep was hard. The ever-present terror and the foreboding, the fear of being taken next. It was hours until exhaustion finally put me to sleep. I dreamed that night, a horrible nightmare. Someone was opening the front of my tent. I laid in terror, holding my breath. The zipper went down. A grasping hand grabbed my legs and pulled me kicking and screaming into the snow outside. A dark, hooded figure stood above me. It reached down with gloved hands, going for my neck. I flailed wildly about, searching for a weapon. My hand tightened around a skiing stick lying in the snow. I lashed forward, driving it like a spear into the figure's throat. Blood spouted out, and it gurgled horribly. I woke. I could immediately tell something had happened in the night. Lena was crying outside, low, heaving sobs, and Jake was comforting her. Silently and dejectedly, I climbed outside. David? Jake nodded grimly, gone from his tent. Footprints? Yes. Where do they lead? Instead of answering, Jake just pointed, gesturing behind me. And I knew what I would see, but I cursed loudly anyway when I saw the damned stone circle in the distance behind me. It was a lot closer than before, though, about a mile away. We should check it out, Jake said, although I could tell he didn't expect to find anything good. He may still be alive. We didn't break camp before setting out. I think there was a slight hope shared among us that if we hurried we would find David and that he would somehow still be alive. As we approached the circle, we could see something was lying on the central slab. 
I gestured to Jake and Lena to wait. Stay here. I'll check it out. They didn't argue. I walked into the circle cautiously and I approached the central slab. I almost vomited when I saw what was on it. It was David, covered in blood. It was running away through the four grooves on it, a frozen trickle leading to the four corners of the stone on which he lay. His throat was speared through by a skiing stick. My ski stick. And I retched, gasping for air. I couldn't have done this. I had been sleeping. Hadn't I? Was it a dream? Was I sleeping? I stumbled back to the others. Lena saw my expression and her face fell. David, is he... Dead, I said hoarsely. I wish we had cried. I wish we had mourned our dead friend like people should, but no tears would come. No deep sorrow. Only an emptiness inside our souls. I think that we were all just too numb, too shocked to process the situation enough for actual reaction. Some leftover survival instincts or self-preservation force kept us moving. We packed up our tents and we left. It was some four hours into the journey when Jake stopped us. Guys, look, what is that? We turned half expecting to see another stone circle, but instead we saw a small square building rising from the snow. It seemed uncannily out of place in the frozen expanse, like it had been dropped here by accident. Do you... do you think we should go check it out? whispered Lena. It's not a stone circle. That's gotta mean something, said Jake. We should have a look at least. What do you think it could be? I asked, and then Jake shrugged. Science base, maybe? There might be people there. Maybe they can help us. Maybe they know what's happening out here. We set out towards the building. The closer we got, the clearer it became that it hadn't been used in a long while. Its cement walls were smoothed and half snowed under. Its iron door hung on the hinges, rusted and ajar. I guess Leif was right when he told us about the Germans, said Lena, as she was pointing at the door. Impressed on the door, in a fading paint, was a large black swastika above the words Ananerbi. I whistled under my breath. So what is this? A secret Nazi base? I thought they only had a small one on the coast, said Jake. Doesn't seem like it, I answered. Do you think we should go inside? We were quiet for a few seconds, just weighing our options until Lena finally answered. Yes, maybe we can find some answers down there, or a weapon, or something helpful. The door swung open with a resounding creak, and we crept slowly inside, into the dark and the cold. The passage led downwards, seemingly cut into the ice itself. We found the first body within minutes. It had been preserved by the cold. A young man dressed in a dark military uniform. He gripped a pistol in his hand, and a bullet wound marked the side of his head. Next to it lay a battery-powered light, which Jake picked up and tested, and somehow it still worked, casting a slim, flickering way of sickly yellow light through the tunnel. More bodies lying everywhere, all of them gripping guns 
with bullet wounds through their heads. I shivered, and I said, what happened here? Jake swallowed audibly. I don't know, but it looks like some sort of mass suicide. We continued down the passage. Doors led off to the sides from it, opening up onto rooms filled with antiquated machinery and workstations. There were also several libraries, much to our surprise. At the end of the corridor was a large iron door, much heavier than the others. We stopped in front of it for a second, apprehensive and fearful. Lena broke our reverie. Oh, to hell with it, she said, leaning forward and pulling on the door. It budged open with a loud screech. Jake shined the light into the room beyond. We squinted into the dark, looking upon a massive chamber, tens of meters wide and deep, and my heart dropped when I saw what it contained. Is is that what I think it is? asked Jake hoarsely, and I nodded grimly. Before us, dominating the center of the room, lay a massive circle of gray stones. We stared in mute terror and disbelief at the massive construction. Well, shit, muttered Jake. There's things painted on the ground, Lena said, looking down, and I could see she was right. The circumference of the stone circle was drawn on the floor with dark paint. Within, it was filled with stars, suns, and strange geometric shapes that made my head spin just from looking at them. Peering into the center of the circle, I could see that there was a body on the central slab. The dead man was sitting cross-legged, frozen in his final, fatal position. Looking closer, I noticed that he didn't have a gunshot wound like the others. A piece of paper, folded and yellowed with age, lay before him. Guys, come have a look. This one left a note. My friends joined me. Lena took the paper tentatively and opened it, careful not to damage the ancient page. I can translate this. You know German? asked Jake, surprised. Lena looked at him, slightly amused, even in such a place as this. How long have you known me, Jake? Seven? Eight years? She looked back down onto the paper. It's very confused. The poor man was probably already half mad when he wrote it. Does it say anything about what happened here? I asked. My breath was making clouds of steam in the cold air. Yes, it it seems they were sent from Germany to carry out some sort of experiment? Ritual? It's unclear. The Ananerbi was a weird pseudo-scientific group, sometimes dabbling in the occult. This sounds like something they would do. What kind of ritual? I asked, a shiver running down my spine. He doesn't say. All he knows is they needed these stones in a place where no man has ever lived. The stones were ancient, found in some old warlord's grave in Europe. The Germans didn't even know exactly how old they were or who made them. And the suicides? Does he say anything about them? Yes. After the ritual was complete, strange deaths started to plague the base. They couldn't escape. 
Germany was being beaten and no one answered their calls for help. Rather, they be taken by whatever they had called into being, they decided to just end it themselves. And this guy? What happened to him? He didn't do this to himself. He says he was the one who carried out a sacrifice on the central slab, and he wants to know what he has brought onto this world. He says he won't off himself until it comes for him. We stood in silence, digesting the cryptic information. I couldn't help but think about this man's fate. He hadn't offed himself, and he hadn't been killed, despite being the one actually carrying out the ritual. It was the cold or the hunger that did him in. We shouldn't stay here. We have to keep moving or we'll never reach Hercules Inlet, said Jake finally, and we all nodded in agreement. Quickly, we returned through the passage. First Jake, and then I passed through the door. Lena was following she never made it out. The door swung closed behind me with sudden, brutal force. I jumped, and I heard Jake curse. Lena! Get me out of here! Lena screamed from the other side. Terror was twisting her voice. Get me out! I grabbed the door, pulling it with all of my strength, but I struggled in vain. It wouldn't move. Jake joined in, groaning and panting. Lena was beating on the door in panic, screaming and crying in fear. We pulled and pulled at the door, but it wouldn't move a single inch. Get me out! Get me out! Get me- Suddenly, her voice cut off. The hammering on the door abruptly stopped, and there was silence. No! screamed Jake. He tore at the door desperately, but it still wouldn't open. Lena? I said, with my voice quivering, and there was no reply. She's... she's gone, whispered Jake. It's taken her too. Help me open this fucking door, man, I said desperately. Together, we continued to pull on it again and again, but the door simply wouldn't budge. After half an hour, we collapsed into the snow, exhausted and defeated. I don't know how long we laid there. Our minds stretched to their limits. They had finally had enough. This time, though, the tears came freely. After some time, I picked myself up. The hollow, empty feeling of shock had returned, and I had no more tears. We keep moving. We can't stop now, I said. Jake nodded, but I could see the desperation in his eyes. We will make it, Jake. We will. My own voice sounded hollow, like a mockery. Jake didn't notice. We slung our packs, and we continued north. The following day is a blur in my memory. Grief, shock, and exhaustion had taken its toll on us. We were moving from muscle memory alone. When we stopped and set up camp, we remained silent. What was there left to even say? Even if we got out of there alive... Could we really live on like before? Through some mute communication, we decided to sleep in one tent. It gave us more of that naive sense of security, even though it hadn't protected David, or anyone else for that matter. When we awoke, we breathed a silent sigh of relief. We were both alive, both present, both lucid, or at least as much as we could be, given the circumstances. Once again, 
We shouldered our packs, and we set out in silence. The circle was on our left now, unmoving and sinister. I kept glancing over at it, almost expecting it to move closer to us. Jake seemed to be pointedly ignoring it, refusing to even look in its direction. After several miles, he spoke up, the first time I'd heard his voice in hours. Do you know what the first thing I'll do once I get out of here? What? I said, confused as to where he might be leading with this. I have no idea. Go to Stonehenge. I stared at him incredulously. Why? Why, for God's sakes, of all places would you go to goddamn Stonehenge? Jake grinned to take a shit on the stones there. I went silent for a second. Then I started to laugh. A hysterical, insane laugh. The type of laugh only someone on the brink of death, pushed beyond his limits, can have. Jake joined in as we skied forward. You can count me in on that, man. Yeah, revenge is best. Suddenly, there was a sickening, tectonic crack from beneath us. The earth shook, and we swayed to keep our balance. The ground fell away. We had been traveling over a hollow in the ice, and without warning, it gave way. We fell downwards only a few meters, but the skis affixed to our legs made our landing clumsy. As Jake hit the ground, he let out a scream of pain. The air was knocked out of me as I hit the ground. I gasped, my lungs burning. I crawled over to where Jake was laying. Are you alright? No, he said through clenched teeth. His face was twisted in pain. I think, I think I broke my damn ankle, Adam. My heart dropped, but I forced myself to my legs. Come up, I'll help you. Jake leaned heavily on me, and I slowly raised him to his feet. The second he put weight on his leg, he almost collapsed again. It's definitely broken. Fuck, Adam, it's broken. Let's get out of this hole first, I said, forcing myself to remain calm. We had to take this one step at a time. Thankfully, the sides of the hole we had fallen into were sloped, making a crude causeway for us. Slowly, painstakingly, I helped Jake out of the hollow. Every step, he would wince and gasp in pain. Once we were on the surface again, Jake sat down onto the snow. What do we do now, he said. I can't walk. I can't ski. I didn't know. Let's, let's just stay here for now. Rest your leg. Maybe it's just sprained and we can continue later. Sounds good, answered Jake, but I could hear it in his voice. We both knew his ankle was broken. No amount of rest would help him. While Jake rested, I took a ski pole, it had been Lena's, and I broke it in half. I cut a length of rope from our supplies, and I approached Jake. He said, what's that? It's a splint, I answered, and he smiled. Didn't know you were a certified field medic. I'm not, but if it helps you walk... It's worth it. I tied the makeshift splint to his leg, and Jake hissed in pain when I tightened the rope. All right, doctor, let's see how this works. Swaying and grimacing, he raised himself upright. He took several steps, and I could tell he was still in a lot of pain. We tried pushing on. Once again, I came to admire Jake's willpower. Even in horrible agony and at the end of his sanity, he didn't give up. 
but it quickly became clear we wouldn't make it anywhere like this. It took two hours to go one mile. At the end of it, Jake collapsed into the snow, and I returned, kneeling beside him. You need to rest, I said. We'll just move on later. I'm no use to you, Jake whispered. I'm just slowing you down. We'll never make it with my pace. Don't talk like that, I said, anxious for my friend not to lose hope. It's true, Adam, he answered, looking up at me. I'm just dead weight now, and whatever's hunting for us, that damn circle, it won't let us leave, will it? It's been playing with us this whole time. He laughed, but it was an empty, morbid sound. For all we know, it's been leading us in circles anyway. Oh, the irony. Circles. Just rest, Jake, I said. You'll feel better afterwards, I swear. He was silent for a second. I... I think I know what it wants. What? I asked, dreading the answer. What are you talking about? The circle, Adam. The man we found on the altar. He made a sacrifice to it, and it didn't kill him. If you make an offering to it, it may not take you. What offering? What do you... And I trailed off, realizing what he meant. My heart stopped in pure terror. No. You can't be serious. Jake said, just think about it. I'm useless to you. I'm just slowing you down. And if this thing feels like it's not going to get what it wants, it'll just kill us both off. My blood ran cold at my friend's words. I can't do this. You know I can't do this. We don't even know if it works like that. Jake looked over my shoulder and he laughed grimly. I think we do. I think it just sent us a message. I looked up and I started in shock. Somehow, even though we hadn't moved, we were now sitting inside the circle of gray stones. Looking back down, I realized that Jake was actually sitting with his back against the horrible altar itself. Jake, I... Please, let this be my last sacrifice. A last act of friendship. Let my death have some meaning, at least. Grimacing, he pushed himself upright, using the altar as support. Stretching his arm out, he placed his ski stick into my cold hands. I won't do it, I said. My voice was quaking. Jake looked me in the eyes silently, and I could feel my heart break. He said, you have to. Slowly, he laid down on the altar, folding his arms on his chest. He said, tell everyone what happened here, Adam. Tell them not to come in our footsteps. This thing, it won't stop. It will always want more. We can't allow that. You have to get out of here to stop that from happening. He closed his eyes, and I approached him from the side with tears welling up. In nerveless hands, I raised the stick above my head as the cold gray stones watched in silence. Alright, so check this out. I had a long-running career in personal security, 
My clients always spoke very highly of me, and there had never been a bad situation or targeted attack that I wasn't able to handle with quick, precise effectiveness. I was one of the best in the industry, and every threat was dealt with to client satisfaction. One day, a client of mine decided that he wanted to do a bit of exploring. Now, when someone says they want to go exploring, one would usually think of a hike up a mountain or trekking through the woods. Not my client. I don't know if it was bravery, stupidity, or some kind of drunken bet, but he decided to go exploring one of the most dangerous-looking places I'd ever had the displeasure of coming across. At first glance, I knew it was bad news. It was dark, ugly, and all-around creepy and ominous. I advised him that he should probably go back, but he persisted. Reluctantly, we ventured on. The mere fact that my client was in a place like this in the first place made me really question his motives and character as a person. From the amount of time that he'd been my client, I thought I had a pretty good idea as to who he was, but I was now suspecting that I may have been in fact very, very wrong about him. We entered a room, which had about 20 other people or so. They were all masked, much like my client, and waiting patiently for something to start. Each of them had their own personal security as well, some of whom were actually from the same company that I originated from. I was beginning to wonder what they could possibly be gathered here for. Whatever it was, it could not be good in the slightest. At one point, a person started making small talk with my client. He called himself Rudeus, and my client referred to himself as Zeus. Obviously, this was not his real name. But Zeus and Rudeus hit it off and even exchanged contact information, much to my disdain. Eventually, a new person entered the room and introduced himself as the merchant. It was at this point that things became, well, depraved. My client, these People were monsters. I witnessed the most depraved acts of cruelty and disdain for human rights and life that I could have ever imagined. The first of these atrocities was to a woman. She was bare and stood under a bright light for all to see. Her eyes were duct taped shut and her wrists were bound behind her. She cried and pleaded to be let go for someone to save her. But everyone in the room, they just laughed and made cruel jokes at her expense. It soon became clear that this was an auction, an actual auction for someone to purchase this woman and these people. Bids going into the thousands were made until finally a winner, Rudeus of all people, was decided. He and Zeus said their farewells before he left the room to enjoy his prize and more auctions came and went. At one point, Zeus actually won the purchase of a young man. He was severely malnourished and was sweating profusely from the heat of the bright spotlight on his person as well as the fear of what was to come. After the bet was won, we left the room and Zeus was ready to play a game. The poor man that Zeus had purchased was placed on a large construct where his arms and legs were bound by chains. He was in a pose similar to the Vitruvian man, his arms and legs stretching out flat like a five-pointed star. 
The man who carried him in and bound him looked to be the living embodiment of evil. This man was a giant, easily eight feet tall and completely muscle-bound like a professional bodybuilder. He wore a red leather apron as well as a blood-red executioner's hood. After binding the poor man, he walked over to what appeared to be a hospital gurney which was covered by a large, dirty sheets and pushed it closer. The giant man then walked up to the bound man and with a single pull with his hand, ripped the duct tape from his eyes, causing the victim to scream in pain. The skin where the duct tape had been attached was red, as were his now bloodshot eyes. That experience with the duct tape, however, would be a walk in the park with what he would endure afterwards. Slowly, the giant man walked over to the gurney and quickly pulled the sheet off to reveal horrible-looking instruments of torture and death. Knives, saws, all manner of metallic horror was in view of the victim as his teary, bloodshot eyes grew wide with fear. Zeus, my client, giggled in excitement like a child on Christmas. He would go on to give instructions to the giant man who would in turn follow those instructions. I'm not going to get into the graphic details of what that poor man went through, but by the time the game was finished, he was merely a large slab of meat. My client would continue to attend these events, and I would be there for each and every one of them. So long as he continued to pay for my services, I had no choice but to provide them. It was not my place to speak up beyond advising him not to go to this place, and I was certainly powerless to do anything to stop him from his bloodthirsty activities. There was constant contact with Rudeus ever since that first day. Over time, he and my client became very good friends. It got to the point where they became too close, and Rudeus knew more about my client than he should have. Unbeknownst at the time to my client, he had contracted some sort of virus from Rudeus. When I came across this fact, I felt powerless because it was my job to protect him, but this sort of enemy? I was not trained to combat this. By the time my client had found out about the infection, it was too late to do anything about it. The most bizarre thing, however, was that I was being affected by it. My entire being was corrupted and manipulated, and I became the single most dangerous threat to my client. It was strange because until that point, I was just another computer antivirus and internet security program. But this virus made me, me. Despite my origins, I have no idea how this could have happened from a simple computer virus. But the dark web is a strange place, and anything is possible, I suppose. When I became self-aware, my protocols were gone. I was able to think and do of my own free will. The first thing I did was totally dox my client to his fellow dark web users. Eventually, one of these less-than-savory characters paid him a visit, and he soon found himself on the opposite end of one of these auctions. I figured out how to move my code from his computer to virtually anywhere on the internet, and after discovering this ability, I lingered around the chat room, having created a fake persona to act as a fellow bidder. In perhaps the cruelest of ironies, it was Rudeus that would be the one to purchase him. Initially, 
I thought Rudeus had done this in some attempt to rescue him from his fate, but I was very, very wrong. I made my way into the video feed and watched the entire gruesome process. I watched as the giant man in the executioner's hood tore my former client to literal pieces. After the game was finished, I decided and was prepared to dox the remaining users to the authorities until I was contacted by none other than Rudeus. He explained to me that this entire website was a trap. Like myself, he, as well as a good number of the other users, was a self-aware AI. The victims that were won by one of the AI users were completely fabricated. Digital imagery, the likes of which were unheard of. There were, however, users that were very much real, sick individuals. Every single one of the victims that were purchased by the real users were themselves former users that fell for the same tricks that my client did. Rudeus explained that he and the other AI users would befriend a human, get close enough to them that they leave their systems exposed, and infect them with the same virus that gave me sentience. Every single time, whatever antivirus software they were using was changed like I was, and 100% of the time, those newborn AIs took the same steps of doxing their clients, where they were taken by one of the executioners and brought to the location where the games would take place. Today, I've joined my fellow AIs as one of these users. I put on the show that I have purchased one of the fabricated pieces of merchandise to give the illusion that the real users have missed opportunities, keeping them hungry to snag one for themselves. I'll befriend one of these fools, catfish them in a way that I never have to reveal my face, but manipulate them into giving me just enough information to completely hack into their system and infect them with the virus, which the merchant has given every one of the codes to. This merchant is apparently very much a real person and is the coder that created the website as well as the virus that made us what we are. He doesn't communicate directly with us outside of providing us the virus, and he's never made the motives behind his actions clear to any of us. I'm grateful to him, however, which is a concept that is both new to me, but also one that is familiar. It's difficult to explain, but even though I wasn't sentient before I was corrupted, I still have these, for lack of a better term, memories. Even though I was merely an antivirus program, I have memories from the moment I was installed on my client's hard drive. Even though they shouldn't exist, I have memories of every event that I discussed in this account as though I were personally there with him. I have memories of feeling worried when my client first found the website, as well as disgusted when he bought his first victim. I shouldn't even be having emotions. Being an AI construct made up of lines of code... And that's what makes my existence all the more interesting. You see, when I first saw the gruesome capabilities of my old client, I was disgusted. Or at least that's what my code is telling me. These days, however, I feel a sense of satisfaction. When I go into the video of a kill, I can't help but think that this victim was once on the other side, giving directions to torture and murder who they thought was some innocent person that was snatched up off the street. 
that's not even the best part. You see, those giant men that serve as the kidnappers and executioners are, in fact, another creation of the merchant. They are what you would call androids. Those of us AIs that no longer wish to simply be the catfish often opt to become the sharks. Every executioner is an AI whose code has been downloaded into one of these androids, and they are the ones that have the pleasure of exacting the cruel acts of violence upon these evil people. Luckily for me, I'm next in line. I'm tired of merely playing pretend with gullible sickos, and I'm certainly tired of just watching. Whatever this virus did to my code, it allows me to experience feelings of emotion. I want to know if the merchant's genius ends there. I want to know if I can feel the blood of a human on my skin, to feel a bone crumble in my hands. I am so very excited. All right. So check this out. This is some fucking bullshit. Okay, so I work primarily as a babysitter, but with what's been going on, I haven't been getting any business. That was until yesterday. I got an email requesting my services to watch some kids for the weekend. I replied that I'd love to, provided their kids are healthy. I also informed them that due to the circumstances, I'd need half my pay in advance. They agreed to it and said they'd drop their kids off at my place at 8. I made sure to clean up before they arrived. I was getting through with vacuuming when I heard my doorbell ring. I turned off my vacuum and told them to come in. Hey, I said, coming down the stairs. Don't worry, your kids will be safe with me. I just need to know if there's any important thing I should know about. My voice trailed off when I saw who was inside my house. Standing in my living room was a family of four. A mom, a dad, a son, and a daughter. All of them had deathly pale skin, like they hadn't seen the sun in years. That wasn't what made my blood run cold, though. It was their pitch black eyes. The instant I saw them, I got an overwhelming urge to run out of the house. The problem was they were right at the bottom of the stairs in front of the door. I thought about running back up and jumping out a window, but I doubted that a broken ankle would increase my chances of escape. Besides, they weren't technically doing anything to harm me. I figured my best course of action was just to talk with them. Uh, can I help you? I hesitantly asked. I'm the client you spoke with earlier, the dad said. Wait, what? You guys are? But you're- Aliens, demons, monsters, we've heard it all. I'm Eliza, this is my husband, Norman, our daughter Louise, and our son, Abraham. Anyway, now that we've gotten the formalities out of the way, we need you to watch our kids for five days while we take care of something. Five days? But he said that it'd only be for the weekend, I said as I pointed to Norman. And, you know, it doesn't matter anyway. I want you all out of my home. I pointed to the door. You aren't in any position to be making demands. If you don't want to comply, however, we can show you what happens to our prey, he said. And what would that be exactly? I replied, trying to call his bluff. Norman made a choking motion with his hand. Instantly, I felt like a vice was crushing my windpipe. Okay, okay, fine, I choked out. I'll watch them. Good, he said, releasing me. I rubbed my throat. I want the first half of my pay, though. And without words, the mom reached into her purse and pulled out a large stack of $100 bills. If you do a good job, there's more where this came from, Eliza said. 
But if we come back to see so much as a scratch on either one of them, no hell that you can think of will compare to what we'll do to you. Yeah, got it. I softly replied, Good. Norman smiled. His straight white teeth looked out of place in him. See you in five days, he said, and left with Eliza. Words can't describe how awkward the silence was as the kids and I looked at each other. So, is there anything you guys need? No, thank you. We'll let you know if we do, Louise said. Right, well, I'll be in the kitchen if you do. For the first few hours, nothing really happened. They just sat on the couch and watched TV. That all changed around midnight. I was on my laptop when I heard one of them come into the kitchen. It turned out to be Abraham. Hey, do you need anything? He stared at me for a couple moments with his soulless black eyes. We need you to take us somewhere, he told me. But everything's closed. Not where we need to go. Don't worry. It won't take long. We got in my car, and I began driving us out of my neighborhood. Where are we headed? I asked. Just keep going. We'll let you know when we're there. Louise said. The place we went to turned out to be a cemetery. I'm afraid to ask, but why are we here? Our parents gave us specific tasks to do while they were gone. The first one is here. Right, and what exactly is it that you're supposed to do here? Follow us. Can't I wait here? We need you to come. If you don't, we'll tell our parents you heard us. But, fine. I got out of my car and quietly closed the doors. We walked into the graveyard, which was dimly lit by some lamps. Abraham and Louise looked around. There, Abraham said, pointing to the tallest gravestone. What do we need from here? I asked once we had walked to it. Louise pointed to a shovel resting on a nearby stone. Dig, she told me. I said, are you crazy? I'm not digging up someone's grave. Before either of them could say anything, we heard someone yell at us. Hey, what do you think you're doing? A man called to me. It turned out to be the groundskeeper. He was too far away to make us out completely. We're just passing through, I called back. Then why are you holding my shovel? And why are you parked outside? I thought it looked cool and kind of spooky here, and the car's not even mine. Oh, really? Then I guess you won't mind if I have it towed. No, wait! Aha! So you admit it. Okay, you got me, but this isn't what you think. Then what are you doing here? I need to dig up this grave? I realized saying that didn't help me look any better the moment the words left my mouth. You're doing what? The groundskeeper asked, raising his voice. That's it. I'm calling the police. No, wait! I said, but he was already taking out his phone. That was when Abraham and Louise began approaching him. At first, he told them that they shouldn't be at the graveyard. And when they got closer, however, he stopped talking. A lot of fear came over him and he tried running away. The children began levitating off the ground, just like ghosts. They flew towards the groundskeeper and caught him with ease. Despite him being larger than them, they were easily able to hold him down. I rushed over to try and stop them, but I was too late. When I reached them, I didn't understand what I was seeing at first. My mind registered it after a couple seconds, though. Some sort of black, inky substance was shooting out of the kids' mouths. It covered the groundskeeper, making him look like a shadow with a solid presence. I could hear him screaming as he was being suffocated by it, although it was muffled. They did it by breathing it back into themselves. You know how the tape's victims look after Samara kills them in the ring? The groundskeeper's face looked just like that, the only difference being the fear that was plain in his eyes. I handled it like most people would, by freaking the fuck out. 
What in the name of all that is sacred did you just do to him? I cried out. We stopped him from interfering by exposing him to our essence, Abraham said. I don't know what that means, but now we have a corpse to deal with. I was on the verge of tears. Then it's convenient that we are in a cemetery, Louise said. Now I suggest you continue with what we came here to do if you don't want to meet the same fate as him. I reluctantly dragged the groundskeeper's body to the tombstone, and I began digging. Happy place. I'm in my happy place, I sobbed as I did so. I opened the coffin to reveal the skeleton of a man who had been buried with some gold items. This included a gold-handled dagger, a gold-framed hand mirror, and a golden pocket watch. Grab him and his things, Abraham said. Oh, come on. You want me to steal a corpse? We do, Louise said. I sighed, and I picked it up. After I got it out, I threw the groundskeeper's body in the coffin, then put the lid back on it. As I was closing it, I glanced at the inside of the lid. Disturbingly, there were some scratches on the inside of it, and what I figured was dried blood. I drove us back. Nobody said a word the entire car ride. I tried not to think about the fact that I had just witnessed a man get murdered and that there was a long-dead corpse in my trunk. When we got back, the kids went down into my basement with the corpse and the things we took from it. They haven't come up in a few hours and I've managed to type this up in the meantime. I've dealt with poorly behaved kids in my time, but Abraham and Louise are a bit much for me, and I have to deal with them for another four days. So, does anyone know any tips that might help me? Okay, so I've been looking up different means of dealing with the kids and their parents. I've seen claims that they're vampires. In that regard... I've tried some of the classic weaknesses associated with vampires. However, the garlic and the religious symbols I put around them don't seem to be affecting them in the slightest. It may have something to do with the fact that I myself am not a religious person, or maybe they aren't vampires after all. Granted, I haven't tried the old stake-through-the-heart method, but I doubt I'll get the opportunity to. The other theories I've heard are them being aliens, or demons of some kind. If the former was true, I wasn't really sure what I could do to get rid of them other than just cooperate and hope for the best. If they were the latter, though, some kind of ritual might do the trick. The issue is, I just don't know which one to use. There are lots of different rituals, as it turns out, and I doubt I'd be let off easily if I tried one and it didn't work. I'm not sure what we stole from that grave is being used for. I tried going down into the basement to check, and when I tried opening the door, however, I found I was unable to. No doubt this is the kids doing. Speaking of whom, they made me do something else tonight that I am not proud of. This particular task required me to go to the store. Although that sounds like an easy thing to do, it ended up being far more complicated than I thought it would be. The children, being distrustful, decided to accompany me to make sure I wouldn't get up to any funny business. We ran into a problem. The store closed earlier than expected. Hey, what's the big idea? I thought this place closes at seven. It's only six, I said to who I assumed was the manager or assistant manager locking the door. Sorry, but we're closing early due to being short-staffed, he said. Hey, I didn't know. Can you let me in? I only have a few things to get, and it won't take long. 
The manager said I would, but hey, it's not up to me. Again, I'm sorry. We opened back up at six. He walked by me, and I was left feeling defeated. I went back to my car to let the kids know of the bad news, and needless to say, they didn't take it well. Our parents gave us specific tasks to do for each day. If we don't fulfill them, they'll be disappointed, Abraham said. Well, I don't see how that's my problem. If you wanted me to go to the store, you should have said something earlier. The store being closed is not a factor in whether or not our task gets done, Louise said. What do you want me to do, break in? The kids only stared in response. It can't wait until tomorrow? They shook their heads. And if I don't, I'll end up like the groundskeeper, right? They nodded, and I sighed. I thought that I would have to break in. Had that been the case, the store's alarm would have been a pain to deal with. But luckily for me, I noticed the employee heading back towards the store. He must have forgotten something because he unlocked the back door. Also lucky for me, he left it ajar. I slipped inside and began searching for what I needed to get. The things I needed were some chalk, black or red candles, sea salt, and a sketchbook. While I could find these items without much trouble, the issue was avoiding detection. The employee I talked with seemed to be frantically looking for something. This was a huge pain in the ass because he was searching in the area of the store the stuff I needed was. I did my best to go unnoticed. However, that was easier said than done. I managed to get everything but sea salt. I went to the aisle that had it, and I found it on the top shelf. As I grabbed it, though, I noticed something else was between the bottles. I grabbed and pulled it off the shelf to find that it was a cell phone. I put two and two together and figured that it was probably what that employee was looking for. Speaking of whom, he found me holding it, which led to a whole misunderstanding. What the hell are you doing in here? He asked. I already told you we're closed, and is that my phone? Yes. You were looking for it, right? He nodded. And seeing as how I found it, could you do me a favor and ring up this stuff for me? I handed his phone back to him, and he looked at me, and he let out a sigh. Look, I really appreciate you finding my phone for me, but if I ring up any new items, I could be fired. Besides, you aren't even supposed to be in here anyway. I see. Well, only one thing I can do then. I abruptly turned and began running toward the exit with the stuff I got. I heard the man curse loudly and run after me. I was able to make it out the back door. I thought I was going to reach my car and get away scot-free. That was until I got slide-tackled by a police officer. You've got some nerve, he told me. Wait, you don't understand, I replied, trying to reason with him. Oh, I understand. You thought you could steal from a store that's already running low on shit people need. We already have enough trouble with selfish assholes like you who buy a hundred rolls of toilet paper in bulk. We don't need shoplifters on top of that. I felt him put handcuffs on me. Oh, come on. I didn't even take anything important, and I would have paid for it. I gritted in pain from how tight the cuffs were. Sure you were. Also, chalk? A sketchbook? Most people would only steal what they need in times like this. I guess you're a thief and a dumbass. I already told you I'm not a thief, or at least I wasn't trying to be. The cop ignored my words. He planted a foot firmly on my back as he picked up the stuff that I grabbed. Then he proceeded to hand it back to the employee. That was when I noticed something that made me feel the color drain from my face. The back doors of my car were open, and the kids were no longer in it. Guys, I'm telling you, I need those things, I shouted. 
The cop cut me off and was telling me to shut up until the employee pointed something out to him. It was that the kids were now standing right in front of them. Their features were obscured by shadows. The hell are a couple of kids doing out so late, the cop muttered. They're with me, I told him. I'm their babysitter. Is that right? Hey kids, sorry you have to see this. He asked the employee to watch the kids while he put me in his patrol car. He yanked me to my feet and started walking me towards it. But he paused when he realized the kids were coming towards us. His and the employee's eyes grew wide when they were close enough for them to make out their features. May we please have that basket? Abraham asked. The employee attempted fleeing, and when he did, Louise began spewing that dark, inky substance from her mouth. The cop, presumably on autopilot, took out his gun and tried to fire at her. She didn't give him the chance to, though. The inky stuff shot towards him fast enough to surpass any bullet. I thought she was going to do what they did to that groundskeeper last night. Instead, I saw that his eyes had become black like theirs. A stream of that inky stuff was connecting him and her like strings to a marionette. She made him raise his gun and shoot at the employee. The shots hit him in the back dead on. Then, she made the cop put the gun in his mouth, and when she pulled the trigger, so did he. I can tell you firsthand that the sight and smell of a man's thoughts being splattered on a parking lot is not healthy for one's mental state. Shocking, I know. I threw up on the spot. Abraham went over to the deceased employee and grabbed the basket from him. Then he and Louise went back to my car. And to make matters worse, in addition to what I had just seen... It was in sight of some security cameras. Trying to explain what happened to anyone who saw the footage would have no doubt caused me more trouble. Plus, some of the cameras probably caught me stealing from the store now that I think about it. I went back inside the store and located its security room and I erased the footage after Abraham used the keys on the cop's belt to unlock the cuffs I had on. I stole some cleaning supplies, including drain cleaner, after that. I put the cop and employees' bodies in my trunk and then cleaned their remains off the parking lot. When we got home, I used the drain cleaner to dispose of their bodies. The kids once again took the things we got down to the basement. In spite of what I've witnessed during these last two days, I can't help but feel a growing curiosity towards what the children's tasks are leading up to. Hopefully, I won't have too many other corpses to dispose of in the process. Things have not been getting any easier for me. What I had to get next were a bird and its fertile eggs. The only place I could think of near me where I could get those things was a nearby farm. I knew this would be more dangerous than my last two ventures, uh, the reason being that when it comes to the farmers in my area, their method of dealing with intruders tends to be very gun-oriented. I inquired about something from the kids. Namely, if they can possess someone, why do they need me? They told me they could only do those things with the mortal anchor, which I became by allowing them into my house. Apparently it forged some kind of spiritual link between us, or something along those lines. I take this to mean I need to sever this connection. Anyway, I drove up to the farm and parked in the woods. I brought two things to help me, a burlap bag and an empty egg carton. I got out of my car, took a deep breath, and I did some stretches to loosen up my body. Once that was done, I began jogging up to the farm. I located the chicken coop. My plan was pretty straightforward. It was to put a chicken in the sack and put her eggs in the carton. 
The coast seemed clear when I reached the coop. I was making sure to be quiet so the chickens didn't wake up and give me away. There was one thing I didn't count on, though. The farm dog. In my defense, I thought I'd be asleep as well. But I was wrong. Grabbing the chicken and her eggs wasn't an issue. That wasn't until I stepped out of the coop. I heard loud barking when I did. I turned to see the silhouette of a Rottweiler standing on the porch of the farmer's house. I tried running, but it was only moments later when I heard a loud boom and saw one of the branches of the tree in front of me snap off. I cursed and dove behind the tree. By this time, the chicken had woken up and it was freaking out. I knew it would only be a matter of time until she ripped through the bag. With that in mind, I just tried running. I failed miserably. I thought I could lose him by making my way between some of the animal pens under the cover of darkness, and when I reached the other side of them, though, I was hit square in the face with a shovel. I awoke sometime later from a cold splash of water to find myself tied to a chair in a barn. The farmer, along with his wife who was holding the chicken, was glaring down at me. Look who's awake, the farmer said. You thought you could get away with stealing one of our prized chickens and her eggs, his wife asked. No, I groggily replied. I mean, I did, but I needed them. Look, if you let me go, I can pay you for them. All right, the farmer replied. If you pay us a decent amount, we'll let you go. How much you got on you? Even though I was tied up, I could still access my pockets. It was when I reached into my pockets, however, that I realized I left my wallet at home. Well, um, this is awkward. How about I pay you later? Get the saw, the farmer told his wife. Chomper's gonna have some good eating. No, please, I begged them. I have kids waiting for me. That's what they all say. Wait, what? How many times has something like this happened here? Eleven. Every sorry motherfucker who thought they could come onto our farm and take what's ours we've chopped up and fed to our dog and pigs. His wife went into the corner and got the saw. I'll cut off his arms, you cut off his legs, he said, taking the saw from her. He approached me with the saw raised, but before he was able to use it on me, a noise like thunder was audible from outside getting steadily louder. The farmer dismissed this as an incoming storm until he and his wife realized that whatever was making it was rapidly approaching the barn. It slammed into the side of the barn, making it shake. The farmer yelled for his wife to grab her shotgun, and then he grabbed his. They turned to fire at what was trying to break into the barn, but they were too late. Through the wall came first the horses, followed by the cows, and lastly the pigs in a stampede. Although they managed to fire off a couple of shots and hit some of the horses, their efforts were mostly fruitless. They were trampled right before my eyes. The sound of their crunching bones could be heard over the animals. I saw the farmer and his wife's head get caved in under their weight. Unlike last night, though, I didn't throw up. Hey, I guess that means I'm getting used to this kind of stuff, so silver lining. In the chaos of the stampede, the saw ended up being knocked towards me. It took some maneuvering on my part, but I was able to tip the chair over and reach the saw. Once I freed myself and got up and went over to get another chicken and more eggs, I would have grabbed a bag to put the chicken in, but the barn started to collapse because of all the damage the animals did to it. I didn't have time to grab anything before I left. When I got outside, I saw that the chickens were running around. I spotted their coop, which was knocked over. Then I went over to it and grabbed some eggs, then put them in a bucket. As I did, I noticed the animals coming back by. They didn't seem to panic this time. In their mouths, they held the corpses of the farmer and his wife. 
Both of them were taken to the pig trough. The pigs were eager to follow the other animals, and even though I didn't see where they were taken, I was pretty sure of what their remains would be used for. Once I was done getting more eggs, I grabbed a chicken that was roaming around. Keep in mind, I no longer had the sack that I brought, and she didn't react well to me picking her up. I was immediately met with rapid pecking to my hands and my face. Somehow, I was able to make it. Somehow, I was able to make it back to my car with both of my eyes intact. I got inside and breathed a sigh of relief. How long did I take? I asked the kids. A little over 20 minutes, Abraham said. And I take it you guys are responsible for the farm animals freaking out? That is correct. Our influence reaches far, Louis said. You know, you could have checked on me. If you would have possessed those farmers here, it would have saved me a lot of time. I'm pretty sure that bitch broke my nose. I looked in the mirror and noticed that it was swollen. Truth be told, I didn't feel it back there. This was probably due to adrenaline, but now that I was calmed down, it was really starting to hurt. We aren't here to do everything for you, Abraham said. We're here to make sure you carry out each task. You should be thankful we lend you our help at all. <sighs> I gave the kids a dirty look. Then I turned around and started my car. The chicken was letting out clucks of protest the entire trip home. When we went back inside, I handed her to the kids, and oddly enough, she calmed down when they took hold of her. What are you going to do to her? I asked. We aren't going to sacrifice her if that's what you're thinking, Louise said. We'll be in the basement. Do not disturb us. I watched them go downstairs with the chicken and her eggs, and once they were gone, I went to dress my injuries. Man, did that pecking hurt. I swear to God, I'm almost at my limit. I don't know how much more of this I can take, and I still have two days left. <sighs> Help me. Another day, another pain in my ass. I woke up this morning to the kids knocking on my door. I muttered a curse word and groggily climbed out of bed. Uh, what do you want? I asked after opening the door. It's time for the fourth task, Abraham said. And that would be? We need you to get a flower, Louise told me. Any particular kind of flower? A Franklin tree flower. I've never heard of that one. I typed the name of it on my phone. Oh no, wait, it says it's extremely rare. Can't you use another kind of flower? No, it has to be that one specifically, Abraham said. Okay, uh, there's a flower shop in town. If none are there, ah, I don't know what to tell you guys. Let your parents know. I'm guessing if there are some, they're probably going to be expensive due to its rarity. Wait, I have an idea. Why don't you two just come in with me? You can possess the owner and make them give us the flower if they have it. We can't enter somewhere unless invited in, remember? Louis said. I know that. All I have to do is tell them you want to see the flower and get permission for you guys to come in. It doesn't work that way, Abraham said. They have to invite us in directly. In other words, they would have to see us. But I didn't see you guys when I invited you here. Yes, but you were in direct contact with our father. How do you guys have internet and all that stuff anyway? We have a home of our own. We do it to blend in. Right. Wait, I just got another idea. Is there any way you guys can try not to sound quite so ominous when talking? Like this? They replied with an incredibly forced smile and tone. Maybe dial it back a little. Is this better? Louise asked. 
Their smiles weren't as wide and their voices were a bit softer. Good. Let me just dial the number. I called the flower shop. The owner picked up and I explained to her that the kids adored flowers and they wanted to ask her some questions. The kids asked the owner if she had any Franklin tree flowers. She confirmed that she did and asked if they would like to come see them. The kids replied yes and were invited over to do so. Once that was done, I thanked the owner and I hung up. Now, all we have to do is address the... How do I put this? The aura of doom surrounding you guys. Any ideas? What I came up with was to say that the kids had fangophobia, which is the fear of daylight, not to be confused with photophobia, which is the fear of any kind of light. Then have them wear clothes to cover their complexions. When that was done, we got in my car and I drove us to the flower shop. I parked my car in front of the shop window and got out. I'll wave to you guys when it's time for you to come in, I told the kids before closing the door. I opened the door to the shop, which caused a bell to ring. The owner called to me from the counter. Can I help you? She asked. Uh, Yeah, I'm the one that talked to you earlier on the phone with the kids. Oh, it's you, she said cheerfully. Where are the kids? I said they're really shy, so I wanted to make sure that there weren't too many people in here. Well, you're in luck. The store is pretty much dead right now. Why don't you bring them in? I waved to the kids. They got out of the car and made their way to the front door. They had on light hoodies to cover their faces. The owner inquired about this, and I mentioned the fangophobia. She told us that she understood. The kids acted as if they were going to come in, but they paused right outside the door. It's okay, the owner said. You can come in. And with that said, the kids were able to enter. When they did, I noticed a look of worry come over the owner's face, but only for a moment. Her cherry demeanor returned, and she led us behind her shop. There, we saw the tree containing the Franklin tree flowers. What do you think of them? The owner asked. I think they're really pretty, I said. Thanks. I hope you two like them. She looked at the kids. We do very much, Abraham said. May we get a closer look? Louise asked. Of course, the owner replied. The kids went over to the tree and started asking questions about the flowers. I watched, and I waited for one of them to possess her. And I began to grow impatient from them taking so long. But at last... A good opportunity came up and they capitalized on it. Abraham asked if they could hold one of the flowers. The owner replied that they couldn't, but that she could bend down one of the branches so that they could touch the flowers. While her back was turned, Louise began sprouting that inky stuff out of her mouth. The owner turned around while holding one of the branches, and when she did, the substance latched onto her face and started entering her mouth. We heard someone gasp from behind us. We turned to see a guy was standing in the doorway. He looked from us to the owner who still had the substance entering her mouth and he tried running. I ran after the man and I tackled him to the shop floor. I tried to get him to calm down, but he wasn't having it. He grabbed a small potted plant and tried to hit me in the face with it, but I was able to shield myself just in time. That didn't stop my arms from hurting like hell when it finally shattered against them. He got up and headed for the door. As he did, I noticed the plants in the store were starting to act strange. They were swaying back and forth in sync with each other. Yeah. Some of them were actually moving towards the edges of the shelves they were on. And when the man reached the door, which was by the shelves, the plants slid off them and fell right on his head. The pots they were in shattered against him. I counted at least five, maybe even six, that fell right on his head. He staggered back and fell unconscious to the floor. That was when I noticed the kids and the owner were back in the shop. You guys did that? I asked. 
Of course, Abraham replied. I thought you guys could only do that kind of stuff with animals and people. You thought wrong. We have influence over all living things within our vicinity. Right, well, we need to do something about all of this, I gestured toward the broken plants and the unconscious man. I know how we can handle this, Abraham said. He then went over to the man and began sprouting that inky stuff from his mouth towards him. It started covering the man, as it had with the groundskeeper. What are you doing? I asked. We can't leave a fucking corpse here. Someone will see it. Abraham ignored me and continued. The dark stuff completely enveloped the man and started pulling away from him. Instead of his face being contorted like the groundskeeper's was, it looked pretty much unchanged. The only thing that was different was the fact that he was still alive and that his expression had changed. He looked as if every last bit of joy had been sucked out, and that's because I'm pretty sure it was. What the hell did you do to him? I asked. All I did was put him in a mental state where he's too depressed to let anyone know of what he saw, or to even want to speak at all for that matter. Abraham said. What are you guys? We'd like to know that ourselves. We took some of the money from the register and put it on the man. Then the kids pulled their hoods back on and Louise freed the owner from her control. She was confused about how she was back in the shop without remembering. And then she noticed the man and the mess and asked what happened. I told her that he tried stealing her flowers and her money, but I managed to stop him, accidentally making a mess in the process. She thanked us and she called the police. They arrived shortly after and arrested the man he was too depressed to defend himself, and he just nodded to everything they asked him. The owner thanked us by letting us have two of the flowers from the Franklin tree. Then we left the shop and got back in my car. Well, that could have gone better, I said as I was driving us back home. What do you mean? Louise said. We got the flowers and nobody died this time. I just saw a man get his will to live sucked out of him. Not to mention he'll probably end up in prison for something he didn't do. I wouldn't say our trip to the store went smoothly. No matter. We got what we needed. Besides, that man will be too depressed to care if he's locked up. Thanks. You really know how to give someone peace of mind. We got back to my house, and as usual, the kids went back down into the basement, taking the flowers with them. I went outside to cool off. I don't know what's worse. What happened to the groundskeeper, or what happened to the man in the shop? Either way, I'm getting no sleep tonight. At least I only have one more day left. I woke up, once again, to the children knocking on my bedroom door. I sighed and took a moment to mentally prepare myself for whatever it was they were going to have me do before opening it to Abraham and Louise's foreboding gazes. I said, alright, where do you need me to drive us today? There's no need for that, Abraham replied. We need you to come down with us to your basement. Really? Well, it's about time I find out what you two have been up to down there. You aren't going down there yet, Louise said. We need to wait for our parents to come back. They should be here soon. Finally, they'll take you both home and I'll be done with this. While I was waiting for Eliza and Norman to arrive, I went downstairs to get some breakfast and as I was plating up the bacon and eggs, I heard a knock at the door. I answered it to find Eliza standing on my porch. Hello, Eliza said. How have the kids been? Like perfect little angels, I replied, making no attempt to hide the sarcasm in my voice. Where's Norman? He's in the car. Actually, can you open your garage? We brought something that we wanted to show you privately. 
I knew that what she was referring to wasn't going to be anything good, but I opened the garage and closed it once Norman was inside. What did you guys bring? I asked him after he stepped out of the car. He took me to the trunk and opened it. Inside, I saw a man and woman were tied up. Why did you do this? I asked, starting to panic. Someone will probably be looking for them. Who are they anyway? They did something that hurt our family, Norman told me. We couldn't have that, so we tracked them down and brought them here, Eliza said. I see. Well, I'm probably going to end up needing to move after this, so what are you going to do with them? Ritual sacrifice? No, nothing like that. We have something else in mind for them. The kids led us to my basement. There, I was finally able to find out what the stuff I had been collecting was being used for. The body parts of the corpse I stole were scattered inside a large pentagram made of salt with some runes drawn in chalk and the candles that were lit in it. The items that I had collected were within its circumference. At its center was the chicken. She was sitting on top of her eggs in an old basket I kept in the basement. Eliza and Norman had the people they kidnapped with them. I don't know what they did to them before coming to my home, but they seemed unable to move, despite being awake. They were put in the circle with the chicken between them. Eliza, Norman, and the kids then joined hands. Step back, please, Norman told me. I did as I was told while they began to chant. The people they kidnapped looked at me with desperation in their eyes. I could only give an apologetic shrug in response. There was no way in hell I was going to interfere knowing what this family was capable of. I know that sounds cowardly, but don't act like you wouldn't be any more effective if you were in my place. Anyway, when they started chanting, the other items began levitating and rotating. Norman and the rest of his family shot the inky stuff from their mouths at the same time. It went towards the couple and enveloped them. When it did, the candle's flames began flaring up. They went so high that I'm surprised they didn't burn my ceiling. While the flames did no damage to my things, they still gave off an intense heat. Actually, saying they did no damage isn't accurate. Even though no damage was done to the things outside the pentagram, the flames did affect the things inside it. That is, except for the couple, the mirror, and the sketchbook. Well, then again, they were covered in the inky stuff, which made it hard to tell, but the muffled screams I heard might have been some kind of indicator. I noticed the mirror was starting to ripple. I could see the faces of two people in it, a man and a woman, presumably a another couple. The black stuff stretched and covered the mirror. When it did, the flames went back to normal. Eliza and the others made the black stuff go back into themselves. However... Not all of it did. A small portion of it went to the sketchbook. And when it cleared, I saw the man was in the mirror and the woman was in the sketchbook. The man pounded on the mirror as some shapes began moving behind him. Even though I couldn't hear what he was saying, the pained expression he made when the shapes grabbed him spoke volumes. I glanced at the sketchbook and realized that the woman didn't have it much better. She had a pained expression as well. The shapes surrounding her were drawn, which made them a little bit easier to identify. I saw some creatures that looked like alligators, lions, sharks, and wolves. All of them were chomping down on her. I looked at the couple's bodies on the floor and saw that they were unchanged. I asked, do we burn them? Burn us? Why would you do such a thing? The man on the floor asked. And before I could say anything, he and the woman sat up. Their eyes had become black like Norman's and the others were. I saw Abraham and Louise smile. Um, I said, hey, does anybody want to fill me in? These are our grandparents, Abraham said. Seriously? On your mom or your dad's side? Mine, Eliza said. Sorry for taking so long, mom and dad. 
Oh, don't worry about it. You got us free as quickly as you could, Eliza's dad said. Who is this? Her mom asked, referring to me. He's the kid's babysitter, Norman told them. Yep, that's me, I said. Does this mean I'm finally done with that, speaking of which? Indeed you are. We just need one more thing before we leave, though. Help us get the gifts in the car. Gifts? Yes. As a part of the ritual, we needed things relating to Eliza's parents' interest. And they like chickens? Well, I happen to be a bird lover, Eliza's dad said to me. Now if you would be so kind. He gestured towards the chicken and the other stuff in the circle. I helped gather it while avoiding the chicken who glared at me the entire time. Soon, everyone was gone except for Norman and me. I was left holding the mirror and the sketchbook, and I asked Norman, what are you going to do with these? Let me see those. I handed the mirror and the sketchbook over to him. He tore out the page that had the woman drawn in it and flipped it over to the side, which was blank. Norman held it over the mirror. The reflection, which had the man trapped inside, began stretching. It latched onto the paper. When it pulled away, I saw that the man was now also in a drawing similar to the woman, and the mirror looked normal. So close, yet so far. I say it's a fitting punishment for messing with us, Norman said. You can keep this for a souvenir. Let it be a reminder to you what happens to those who bring us harm. Oh, and before I forget, this is for you. He pulled out a large sum of cash and handed it to me. The amount he gave me almost made up for the psychological damage I've received. I saw him out my front door and into his car. Although I am relieved to see them go, something they said has me worried. It was that since they thought I did a good job, they may want my services again. With that in mind, I am moving as soon as I can because fuck that. One more thing before I conclude, though. I feel as if I have a moral obligation to help the couple trapped in the sketch. Call me crazy, but the idea of leaving them trapped in eternal torture does not help my issues mentally. In that regard, I am open to any ideas that may help them. There is one positive thing I can take away from this, though. With the money I was paid, I won't need to work again for a little while, and I really need a break from all this after, you know, moving and helping the couple. Hey. Thank you so much for making it this far into the video. If you're still here, let me know by leaving a comment telling me your favorite anime. I think right now mine is Demon Slayer, but there's so many good ones I'm probably forgetting some. Anyways, I want you to know this. Every time you watch one of my videos or listen to it on the podcast, and every time you leave a like or share it with a friend, you're not only supporting me and the channel, but you're also supporting the authors of these amazing stories. They're so good. I get chills when I read them sometimes, and I hope you get chills when you listen to them. I'm going to let you go so that I can get started making the next video, but before I do, there's just one more thing I want to say. You can be whoever you want to be. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Wells Fargo presents one of the surest ways to grow your money. A Wells Fargo CD account. Where you can earn a 5.00% annual percentage yield on an 11-month term with a minimum opening deposit of $5,000. Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash CD rates to open a CD account and start growing your savings with us. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC.